I'm Radio Roger, and you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. W-A-P-G, it's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 353. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 706 at the Sheraton Hotel Inner Harbor in Baltimore, Maryland. Today's show was recorded on the 13th of December, 2018. In today's episode, runway excursions, EMAS, bird strikes, and more, your feedback, and this week's plain tale, Mare's Tales and Woolly Fleece. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. Flight 353 is ready for pushback. Hello and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and add our commentary and we also answer your fantastic feedback. And joining me today to help me help us do that is from her lakeside studio in South Carolina, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff, good to see you. And yes, I finally did make it back to my studio this afternoon. It was kind of a busier than usual Thursday for me at work. It's usually my easy day or half day, but glad to be here now. Looking forward to a great show. We're glad you're here as well. And also joining us from his recording studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Oh, isn't it great to be back on? And Christmas is coming, and the geese are getting fat, and I'm not feeling very well. Is he talking about me? <laughs> All right. Well, great to see you again, Captain Nick, and... Also joining us from the studio here in Baltimore, Maryland, in the Inner Harbor. Well, not in the Inner Harbor, at the Inner Harbor. In the studio here joining me is Hillel, APG community member extraordinaire, a pilot. And well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a native from Baltimore, and I fly for myself. And occasionally I fly for work, which is not to get paid, but to commute. And um, I'm here because you're here. Awesome. Well, I'm glad it worked out. And thank you very much. He's also uh, provided beverages from a local brewery. Uh, Where's this mine? Is, well, in the fridge. Yeah, to, to, in yeah, the fridge. Sure. We'll just. I'll <laughs> I think they brought you. beers for us. We just. Uh, <laughs> I'll I'll go and look. I don't we just didn't get the memo the we were though. supposed to be in Baltimore not, this afternoon. Not your fridge. The fridge in the studio here in uh, what, the APG in fridge. Yes, uh, we need to sort that out. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll fix it in post. 
<laughs> oh, and, you can fix all kinds of things. In yeah, it's amazing. Apparently, what we can do after the fact. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm so uh, excited that uh, Hillel was able to uh, join us today, and uh, we're actually going to have a nice little um, meetup after uh, the uh, show recording today. So looking forward to uh, the uh, the meetup. Hopefully, we'll. Um, are we going to have some others uh, in the area yeah, join at, us? <clears throat> at least one other person that I know of is okay. definitely joining us, another pilot. Mm-hmm. and um, The guy we'll, on Slack, right? I don't know if he's on. No, no, someone else. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, there was somebody else that was uh, interested in uh, doing a meetup on Slack. I'm hoping that he knows that we're... Well, you, you've announced I, it on I Slack. I put it on Slack. Yeah, okay. Excellent. So whoever is showing up... Oh, that, well, that we heard. Well. <laughs> someone's phone is ringing now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... That notification sound works. Okay. Very good. Oh, it, um, there's a little chap in India can fix it all in post for you. <laughs> really? How much is he charged? <laughs> About 20 rupees a minute. That's not much, is it? I don't think okay. so. <laughs> okay. Good. Well, maybe we'll look into that. <laughs> How has everybody been doing since uh, the last episode, the last show? Oh, I've been doing all right. We had a little bit of snow here over the weekend, but other than that, nothing really much to talk about. Um, wait, wait, wait. Think, Wasn't, when, weren't you supposed to get like two or three feet of snow and the whole city was just going to be paralyzed and all that? Well, we got, I mean, at my house, we got about an inch of slush and the whole city was paralyzed for about two days. But north oh, of the city, go. they did get more, but it was still not. I mean... You know, by the standards of Baltimore or any other city north of, I don't know, Mason-Dixon line, probably not anything that would have even made the news, raised concerns. People would have just gone about their business. So, right. But it's the South and we don't have any um, any logistics in place to take care of snow when it happens. So everything gets shut down. I think what you have like four or five trucks that, that I think, can go out I there and read once that Charlotte has eight. Snowplow. Oh, really? No, just joking. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> Wait a minute. They were up there in like an at. Well, I guess it makes more sense for Asheville and some of the communities in the uh, yeah, in the yeah, mountains. Yeah, yeah, they, they do actually get snow. So, yeah. and it still shuts those places down. <laughs> I they think Atlanta has more than there. eight. <laughs> yeah, well, I could be wrong. They may have they may have procured more snowplows since then. But Steph, I cannot believe that. <laughs> I should probably get my facts right. <laughs> but it's get funny. I like it. <laughs> yes, yes, it's a good good uh, number. But anyway, beyond that, nothing else going on. And actually, if you don't mind for a moment, um, uh, Nick and I have something that we'd like to um, put together here for you for a few minutes. So we're going to take control of the show. I know it's your show, but just go ahead and sit back and I'm going to turn it over to Nick for a few minutes. Nineteen eighty eight aviation news in three, two. Looking back, 1988 was an interesting year in aviation. Why do I say that? Well, let's look what happened. In January 1988, here in the USA, the government finally started to track on-time arrival and baggage handling performance of U.S.-based airlines. That same month, a Boeing 747 set a new around-the-world speed record of 36 hours 54 minutes, and in February of 1988, we saw the first flight of the 737-400. In April 1988, Aeromexico declared bankruptcy as a government airline and was grounded, and in October, after being privatized, resumed operations with a new corporate identity, although still marketed as Aeromexico. 
Later, in April, Pacific Southwest Airlines shut down operations as it was integrated into U.S. Air. Remember Aloha Airlines Flight 243? That was a 737-200 that suffered an explosive decompression in flight over the Hawaiian Islands. It lost the top part of almost a quarter of its fuselage. That was in April of 1988, as were the first flights of the 747-400 and the McDonnell Douglas T-45 Goshawk. British Airways was in the news in April 1988, too, when they first started flying the Airbus A320. In May 1988, American Airlines took delivery of their first Airbus A300s, and Shamu-1, the first Southwest Airlines Boeing 737, painted like a killer whale, took its first flight. Do you remember Captain Nick's plane tale about Taka Flight 110? That was a 737 that hit some heavy rain, hail and turbulence, lost power, and made a dead stick landing on a wide grass levee in Louisiana. Yep, May 1988. And now defunct British Midland Airlines started service with the British Aerospace ATP in May 1988 too. In June 1988, the first crash of an Airbus A320 occurred. That was Air France, Flight 296, carrying 130 passengers and a crew of six. They were making a low-altitude, low-speed flyby with landing gear down as part of an air show in France. But they hit some trees beyond the runway and went down, killing three on board and injuring 50. July 1988 brought us a story about 11-year-old Chris Marshall flying a Mooney M20 from San Diego, California to Paris. And in August, Carl Icahn took TWA away from stockholders and made it a privately owned airline. Speaking of big airline deals, in October 1988, Donald Trump made arrangements to purchase the Eastern Airlines shuttle. So 1988 was the beginning of the end for two great legacy carriers. In November 1988, after five years of secret operations and public speculation, the United States Air Force publicly unveiled the Lockheed F-117 Nighthawk stealth fighter. A couple of interesting things happened in December 1988. Flying Tiger Line was sold to Federal Express, although the full merger wasn't completed until August the next year. And arguably, perhaps the most historic aviation-related event of 1988 took place in December, when Pan-American World Airways Flight 103, flying from London to New York, exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland, killing all 259 on board and 11 on the ground. All that and more took place 30 years ago. It seems 1988 was a big year in aviation history, and those are only the highlights. In fact, I left out what to me, perhaps to you, is the most personal historic aviation event of 1988 one that I'm celebrating and hope to celebrate with all of you, too. You see, 1988 was truly the founding of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. Back on December 15, 1988, our good friend Jeff Nielsen started his career with Acme Airlines. Congratulations on 30 years, Jeff. And maybe, and yeah, I know I'm throwing this to you blind, but maybe you can tell us a bit of how you got to Acme and some of the changes you've seen over the past 30 years. Well done, Captain Jeff. Thanks so much for doing what you do, for being who you are. And on a more personal level, thanks for being my friend. For the Airline Pilot Guy podcast here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah. G'day, Jeff. MBF, just thought I'd send you a little message. 
to congratulate you on 30 years at Acme. 30 years. That's a long time to be flying dinosaurs, mate. Anyway, 30 years ago was the Seoul Olympics, as well as Calgary, from memory. The Ben Johnson Affair, although I'm sure that you're probably up in the sky with your wayfarers on, and uh, being busy being a first officer. All the best, mate, and congratulations. 30 years in any career is a massive achievement. And to be able to do it in something that you absolutely passionate about is a blessing. From everyone down here in my family, to you and yours, once again, all the best, buddy. MBF, out. G'day, Captain Jeff. It's Glenn here from Down Under. 30 years of flying for Acme. Fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, I just wanted to say that. And thanks for such a for starting such a great um, for founding such a great community that we have now. You know, members all over the world, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing as many people as possible at Oshkosh next year. Well, that's about it, really. Uh, Glenn out. Hello, APG crew and community. It's Jen Niffer here, and I wanted to leave a little feedback because. I've been thinking a lot lately about the year 1988. Um, I would have been in college that year. Dr. Steph would have been two or maybe three. Um, Other things that happened that year, the top grossing movie was Rain Man. Faith by George Michael was at the top of the billboard charts. NASA returned to space for the first time after the Challenger disaster. The Winter Olympics were held in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. The first major computer virus hit the internet. And that was the year we elected George H.W. Bush as president. But probably the most important event of 1988 happened in December of that year, when an airline that we like to call Acme hired a pilot named Jeffrey Nielsen. Wow, 30 years at Acme. Congratulations, Captain Jeff. And thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and experiences with us via the APG podcast. I hope you get to do something special to celebrate, like fly to O'Hare or Newark, Uh, or maybe just stay at APG headquarters and have a beer or two. Congrats again, Captain Jeff. And as always, thank you so much for an amazing podcast. Talons, Douglas, bye. Hello, Jeff. It's Captain Al here. A little bird tells me that you're celebrating your 30th anniversary at an airline very similar to Acme. Well, congratulations, and it seems only fitting that I should do something to mark the occasion. So on your 30th anniversary flight, I've arranged for those elderly dumpy flight attendants to be replaced by some of my 20-year-old Romanian flight attendants. Now, Jeff, don't worry. I know that you don't handle foreign languages very well, but rest assured, these girls can speak perfect English, And they've assured me that they will be able to learn American by the time they reach you. Now, to make sure that you feel at home, I've arranged for some of them to have the little plastic booby-doos that you like in America. Have a great trip. Well done for 30 years. 
and here's to the next 30 years. Captain Al, out. Jeff Oldhorse, it's Pip here, wishing you many congratulations on three decades at Acme Airlines. What an achievement. Three decades and three aircraft types. The 727, the TriStar, and of course, the illustrious Mad Dog. Uh, It's a career that us young bucks can only hope to emulate one day. Of course, there's still a bit of life left in you yet, I bet. Maybe even another type rating. Something that would bring you internationally across to our friendly skies. Perhaps it would certainly be uh, an honour to see you over here. But until then, wishing you all the very best and, of course, safe flying. Take care. So we have a very special message to uh, send out to a certain very important podcaster. Uh, as it is someone's uh, anniversary at a certain airline. And Jeff, congratulations, because a little birdie told me that uh, you have been with Acme for 30 long years. Uh, Nev, I mean, how long has the Mad Dog been around? Yeah, I mean, they're retiring the aircraft at an incredible rate of knots, aren't they? But uh, here's an interesting fact for you. Did you know that in the United Kingdom, you actually get less time for murder? <laughs> Indeed, I'm going to make him, I'm going to make him feel really old now, uh, Jeff. To literally the nicest man in the entire world. Uh, I think I think we can we can say that, can't we? He's literally the nicest yeah. man in the entire world. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, to make you feel really old here, obviously, when you first started uh, flying said Mad Dogs and or generally flying for uh, Acme, uh, I would have been 11 years old, Jeff. <laughs> Um, yeah. Just to put that in perspective for you, I'm 42 now, uh, <laughs> so yeah. So just to put that in perspective, but no, as I say, mm. congratulations. And, hey Matt, uh, Matt, yeah, Matt. what, 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 what? You never guess what aircraft Captain Jeff could go on to fly for Acme. Um, uh, something equally as ancient and. Um, <laughs> no, no, no! Your favourite aircraft? Oh, what a seven five seven! Please be kidding! Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Oh, please don't do that, Jeff. Please, just no, no, no. Retire or something. Don't, don't do it. <laughs> no, hopefully Jeff has got many, many more good years of flying to go for uh, Acme. And uh, you never know, perhaps one day us three might get a chance to uh, hop on board said aircraft with Jeff as our captain. Oh, what, what an honour that would be, hey, gents? Yes, it certainly would be. And uh, thank you very much indeed, Jeff, for the hours and hours and hours of content that you and the crew churn out every week on APG. It is superb. Is that just for one show? <laughs> anyway, should we stop being should we stop being rude to the to, to the guest of honour? <laughs> yes, all the very best, Jeff, and congratulations on your awesome length of service with Acme. Greetings, Captain Jeff. Hillel here. Congratulations on the anniversary of your illustrious 30-year career with Acme Airlines, an airline nobody flies. Maybe if you keep at it, you might get hired by a real airline, like Delta, perhaps. All this pretending you do might actually work out for something useful. But don't worry, your secret is safe with us. When you apply, feel free to use us as a reference. We won't let on that you've been faking this airline pilot guy thing for so long. You're just lucky you're such a lovable guy and have created such an incredible community. We'll keep up with this ruse for as long as you need. Maybe by then the FAA will see the light and raise the required retirement age to something where you can get a real career out of it. 
Until then, we'll just keep playing along and you can fly all the MD-88s and 90s you want and we'll just go along with the L-1011 that you flew and the 727 and whatever else they might have flown back and then and whatever else Acme might throw at you in the future. We know that you've been getting a kick out of doing what you've been doing for so long. We don't want to spoil that for you. We know better than to wish you another 30 years at this because we've been believing that the FAA is going to kick you out sooner or later. So for however long you want to keep at it, we'll keep it look out for you. And we were behind you all the way. Congratulations, blue skies, tailwinds, and be clear and unlimited. Hey, Captain Jeff Fred here. And I just heard 30 years at Acme Airline. Wow. Even for a fictional airline, that's impressive. But all kidding aside, sir, congrats. Congrats on the show. Congrats on the community. and Congrats on a great career. Now, if it takes 30 years for somebody to grow a top 10 pilot mustache, that does not leave a lot of hope for the rest of us out there. Sir, I'm proud to call you a friend, and I wish you as many more years of happy flying as you want. Captain Jeff, congratulations on 30 years of service with Acme Airlines. Having been your dispatcher before, ridden on your jump seat, and even flown with you in my personal airplane, you are a captain's captain. You are a complete, utter professional, and it is always a pleasure to work with you and fly with you and all that. So congratulations on 30 years of service with Acme. Congratulations to only having five more to go, us Junior people have a lot more than that. In fact, I think I have more time to retirement than you have years of service with the company. So anyway, Jeff, congratulations again. Hi, Jeff. It's Liz here. Congratulations on your 30th anniversary with Acme. What an amazing milestone. I'm sure when you look back on your first day, you think to yourself, wow, that's a long time ago. But probably part of you also thinks, wow, that doesn't seem like all that long ago. I have those thoughts when I look back on things. I also think of the thousands of passengers you've safely delivered to their destinations. Quite amazing, really. The last thing I think about are all the first officers who've had the opportunity to share the cockpit with you. I know you're not an official training captain, but I'm sure you're able to impart a lot of good information to all of those people. And also, most importantly, how to be a professional pilot. I know professionalism is incredibly important to you. Well, here's to a few more good years flying with Acme. And many congratulations, Jeff. Cheers for now. Hey, Captain Jeff. Captain Dana here. I want to take a few minutes to congratulate you on a monumental achievement of being with Acme Airlines, our company, for 30 years now. Congratulations. Unbelievable. All the torment and torture you've put us all through and made us deal with all your insecurities and your inabilities to do anything correctly. Well, you know, I know what? I know that we'll be very thankful when you're gone, leaving us behind in your legacy. Oh, come on. I'm really only kidding. Anyways, You are an unbelievable pilot, an unbelievable mentor, an unbelievable person, and certainly the founder of this great community called the APG. Truly an honor to be a part of it. 
Really enjoy the uh, banter, enjoy the people that are involved in, in our lives, and guess what? It's all because of you. You have done an unbelievable thing creating this uh, community. You represent our company extremely well uh, when you're out there flying the line, making your PAs, interacting with passengers. You're just an all-around great person. So from the bottom of my heart, and I did say hot. I really want to say congratulations on an unbelievable career so far, and I look forward to seeing it continue, being a part of this uh, community, and uh, you're a real true gentleman. So enjoy it. Congratulations. And back to you, the rest of the community. Hi, Captain Jeff. Dr. Steph here. Just wanted to add a few brief words of congratulations for your 30-year anniversary at ACME. I'm recording this while sitting here in my office in view of the five years of service certificate I received from my company this year. I don't know the stats for pilots these days, but the statistics for physicians in America are pretty dismal and show that the majority won't stay at uh, their very first job for even five years, let alone 30. I'm sure it takes a number of factors to contribute to such a long tenure, and chief among those is the quality of the company you work for. But no less important are the personal qualities of dedication, loyalty, and passion for your chosen profession that we have all come to know so well. So congratulations on 30 years as a professional airline pilot at ACME, and at least five more yet to come. I look forward to raising a toast to this momentous achievement during the show this week. Cheers. Hey, Jeff, 30 years. 30 years is a long time. Momentous occasion. It's Miami Rick live from a uh, very blustery, cold, and snowy Anchorage, Alaska, and from Hong Kong yesterday. Where the temperature was nice, the winds were light, and the food was good. Uh, back to Hong Kong tomorrow, so looking forward to that. But before I left, I wanted to uh, congratulate you and uh, on marking your 30-year uh, anniversary and wish you the best blue skies, happy landings, and hopefully a Boeing before you hang them up. Take care and all the best. 30 years with one outfit particularly a dodgy one like Acme, is an outstanding achievement, Jeff. But I think you'll agree, after those wonderful messages of congratulations and that outpouring of love, that your greatest achievement by far has been the creation of your Airline Pilot Guy community. Through your marvellous podcast, you've brought people together, which is a wonderful accomplishment, and will, I'm sure, be a lasting legacy. On behalf of all your APG listeners, we thank you, and all wish you well for the rest of your flying career. So what did you have in mind for our show today, Jeff? Well, this was not in my show notes. Oh, you all. didn't get the updated copy? No. Oh, and Liz, I was I'm going to blame the producer for that. I one. was, I was telling Hillel, if I had known that you were up to do in something like this, I would have said no. I'm not <laughs> going to do that. <laughs> Thank you very much for all of you for uh, all the wonderful things said, which were mostly untrue. <laughs> you know, just like my virtual airline, my virtual career has been awesome. No, well, seriously, congratulations! You deserve Thanks. all of those kind words and. Uh, Cheers. Well, thanks. Uh, here we go. Cheers. 
Thank you, everyone. And cheers. And many cheers I see in the chat room. Well done, Jeff. Sweet. Now, I'm not sure how we fixed this in post, but uh, the uh, there was a wonderful slideshow that apparently only those of us on the crew got a chance to see. And so I'm sure we'll be able to figure out a way for people to view. Um, I guess, Nick, you put all that together, all those slides? I, I, it was a manual slideshow. I was dropping them into eyeglasses oh. as we went along. So, oh. uh, Well, I don't know why it was that, you know, when you were presenting that, um, well, not you presenting, but uh, presenting those pictures, uh, why nobody else could see them in the, in the chat. Uh, Maybe I have no idea either. Host. No idea. I don't know if we can fix it in post, but uh, yeah. But, hey, NevTech. This is being Help. reported off of you, right? Help. Yeah. Yeah. So he might be there. But no, it's not because what you're seeing there, because the, the oh, only reason why I knew that is because um, Hillel is looking at what we're broadcasting. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. why is it we only see Nick's, you know, photo there? So, oh, well. Apparently, um, I'm not on camera. Is, uh, 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 I see you. I see you. Yeah, you're on camera. Okay. It's just that when you shared your screen, uh, was there anything there that said, like, show or like present to everyone? No. No, look. When Nick talks, all we see is his picture. Oh, yeah, you're still not. Well, I'm. I'm. I, my video is going through in my thumbnail, so I think it might be a glitch in. Hang it's up a glitch. Thumb. Yeah, because we never have technical issues. No, no, we never have glitches on the APG. Anyway, drink beer. You know, so there are a couple. Um, actually, it was one photo in there that was played a couple of times. <laughs> that's Our probably good. <laughs> you didn't see that one. Could be the uh, cover for the the. You know, like the artwork cover for the entire episode. Uh, yeah, or not. You'll never see the podcast on iTunes. I told I, Jeff again. that he should just claim Photoshop and that was his <laughs> alibi. And there's a, and I was telling Hillel, there's a story behind that. Um, I don't know. Did, did you know the story? Um, I don't there may be a story. Go ahead. There was a, um, we, we had a, a technical issue uh, and a, a delayed flight. And we finally got the flight performed. And, but apparently not every, I'd say 99.9% .9 of the passengers were happy. I know it doesn't work out exactly right, the math, but most of the passengers were very happy with, you know, us fixing the airplane and finally getting them to their destination. But there was one passenger that was not quite so impressed with our performance that day. That's, I guess, especially mine. Because as he was walking off the airplane, and I'm saying goodbye to everybody, <laughs> he was holding up a single finger. Oh, you're joking, really? No, I'm not joking. Oh. He, I remember, yeah, I remember the story. <laughs> and it was like, and, and I just started laughing because I didn't know what else, I didn't, yeah, I didn't know how to react to it. And as he walked, and I just as he was walking out the door, I said, "Well, thank you, <laughs> thank you very thank much." Yes, yeah, but I mean, he life. had a. He had a very, very stern looking face and just holding up and he didn't say it. He didn't utter a word. He didn't really need to. It, it was all nonverbal communication with I'm number one, basically. Mm -hmm. is what he, was he was telling saying. you you're number one. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> Maybe it was a compliment. He might have just had Tourette's or something with his fingers. <laughs> yeah, it could be. But I've never, ever experienced that in my life. And I've been doing this, as you just heard. For 30 years, uh, day after tomorrow, by the time you're listening to this podcast, I've passed over that 30-year threshold with Acme Airlines. So, um, and thank you so much, everyone, for for all the kind words. And uh, it's been 
an awesome career so far, and hopefully it will continue to be the next five years. And uh, I'm I'm truly blessed that I got hired by I think one of the best airlines in the world. And so um, my professional career has been so great, and that's one of the reasons why I decided to do the show because I felt like I should give back because it's been so good to me. I didn't think I would start breaking up, but I guess I'm going to. Oh. Anyway, so Hillel now is going to say something. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that we have an actual show, I think. Oh, yeah. We should do a show. There's, there's maybe a show. In honor of my 30th anniversary in a couple Good of Good idea. Absolutely. Get some beer down your neck, sir. Ah, uh, yeah. That was just a little, uh, little frog or something. Yeah. Part of that cold. I'm scratch. Still trying to get up. Yeah. Scratchy. Scratchy throat. At least it's not as bad as 200, right? Absolutely. We haven't reached that point you yet. Really, you'll remember. <laughs> you'll remember this late day in Baltimore forever. Yes, I will. I will. Awesome. Thank you, whoever came up with the idea to do that. Um, awesome. Thank you. That was very touching. And now, well, basically, we don't have any more time <laughs> to do this show. So, thanks for uh, joining us this week. Here, let me play the. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Oh, we are really done. Okay, great. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> I get to do something <laughs> something important in my life instead of doing this stupid thing. Um, anyway, um, yeah, thank you, all of you. Uh, I do appreciate it. Okay. Um, Nick, what have you been up to? Uh, not a lot, sir. I, You've I, been to, to the Caribbean, right? Been to the Caribbean and back and spent the last day knocking together some audio, but... Uh, uh and oh that uh, that was your doing huh <laughs> well no I, I i just pieced it together i didn't do all the organizing you will have to mm-hmm. thank someone else for that i don't know who i don't know whether it's liz or steph or or dana got that organized i suspect liz i don't know it was not me i don't know who uh, uh liz uh, arranged it. you're a peach i can take i can take no credit but credit to wherever it's due someone loves Absolutely. i have a feeling i know who it was yeah you did some kind of a sign language there thing, and I think you just did Liz. Did Liz. Yeah, <laughs> I thought he was giving the wind up. You've been talking too I long. Maybe it was his Tourette. All right, so the letters are L I Z. Okay, thank you. I need all the help I can get. Okay, uh, let's see. Dana is not with us. Uh, I was going to say, hey, Dana, what have you been up to? But right now, we can tell you that Dana is up to flying a jet from Detroit. To, I'm not going to say what he called Detroit, his, his <laughs> special little name, just in case anybody listening out there is from Detroit. And uh, he's flying that airplane to Bradley. And unfortunately, timing didn't work out very well for Dana to be with us today. Or perfectly, depending on who you ask. Yeah. yeah I will I will say he was really disappointed that he wasn't going to get to sit here to watch your reaction yeah, to and all of that. He really did want to be here for that. So I'm, we I must see Dana. Sorry you couldn't be here for this part of the show. I just thought it was going to be a regular show. So, you know, I thought, well, no big deal, Dana. You know, you've missed shows before, whatever. But uh, anyway, um, yes, I have mentioned my career prior to Acme Mark Normington. Um but I'm not sure I've done it on the Airline Pilot Guy show. Maybe when I started podcasting, I did a Catholic pilot. And I may have talked about my life before Acme Airlines. Uh, but essentially, you know, I'm not going to talk about it because I want to do a special show with everybody, uh, all the APG crew talking about 
our um, how we got here, uh, very much like Steve Horn does for us when he flies with uh, first officers that have really interesting stories and backgrounds. And then uh, Pilot Pip and Captain Al did a very special, looks like it's going to be at least a three-parter, uh, uh, how they ended up getting involved in aviation and how they got where they are. And it's really fascinating to listen to. And I thought to myself, as I was listening to that, that, that we should do that. So Nick and uh, Steph and Dana and I can talk about our backgrounds and how we got to where we are. So look forward to uh, doing that in the future. So I won't mention, anyway, I was in the Air Force for a little over seven years and then got hired by ACME um, about 30 years ago. So a lot more to it, a lot more detail, but that's the, uh, in a nutshell, what, uh, what happened with me. And uh, right now I'm on a four-day trip. It's day three of the four-day trip, and I'm looking forward to our meetup uh, here in Baltimore after we finish recording the show today. And let me quickly look at the show notes. I don't think I put anything in there for me to talk about. No, I haven't. So that is uh, pretty much it. I picked up a trip next week, another four-day trip, and that'll be my last trip of 2018 most likely. And I haven't updated my schedule yet on the um, website, but I'll do that um, soon, hopefully. I don't, I don't remember exactly where I'm going, but um, that's that's it for me. Anything else we should do before we uh, get on with the coffee fund? Nah, let's go for it. I know that Hanukkah, the Jewish festival of lights, just ended a few days ago. But to honor our Jewish Airline Pilot Guy show community members, including Captain Dana and our guest host here, Hillel, I've decided to play this song for today's Coffee Fund segment. I have a little dreidel. The Coffee Fund is your way to support the Airline Pilot Guy show financially. While it is offered as a free podcast, we do have expenses to put the show out there for you each week. Using the Coffee Fund Classic Method this past week are Jeff and Anissa Moeller and Richard Adams. The other way to participate in the Coffee Fund Cadre is via Patreon, patreon.com. Our new patrons this week are... Coming in as new producers, Robert Koble and Wombat. And, yay, we have a new executive producer, Walt Simpson. Remember, a benefit of the Coffee Fun Cadre is access to our periodic crew logs, which are exclusive audio snippets available to our contributors. So, why not join the Coffee Fun Cadre? I think you'll be glad you did. I know we will. And to find out more, please visit airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Stand by for news.
All right, let's start with the first item in the news folder, and that is a story uh, that was sent to us uh, by several people, actually, but uh, Steve is one that uh, we used this link. So, um, in fact, this happened, I believe, when we were, we were, I should not be drinking I'll, I'll, beer. I'll help you out there, Jeff. Do- it happened while we Thank were. Thank you. We're, <laughs> not I haven't even been drinking it. While the last <laughs> happened while we were recording the last episode. So yes, we did not address it during that say. podcast because we wanted to get some more information about it, even though there were some chat room requests to talk about it. So here you go. What happened? Well, should I just read the article? Um, I think maybe you should. Okay. Or summarize. <laughs> or you could so, just make it up as you go along. Yeah, we'll, we'll summarize. So um, basically what happened last week, a Southwest Airlines plane slid off the runway in Burbank during landing. Uh, oh my gosh, the, the headline here is great. Plane careens off runway as deluge creates issues across L.A. County. So there you go. Not sensational at all. Um, A Southwest Airlines plane rolled off the end of a runway at the Hollywood Burbank Airport during a heavy rain while landing Thursday morning, according to the FAA. Uh, The flight originated in Oakland, was landing in Burbank shortly after 9 a.m., slid off the runway, came to a stop after hitting a barrier designed to catch airplanes, commonly referred to as EMAS. Um, no reported injuries, 112 passengers, five crew members. Uh, but I like the, the quote from the passenger here. Gary Scott said, we didn't realize what was going on. It was that fast. It got very bumpy and I felt the front of the aircraft sink in a little bit. And then it was like, okay, we're done. So pretty, uh, anti-climactic. <laughs> uh, he said he knew the plane had skidded off the runway when he saw mud splashing against the windows and the headlights from cars on the road behind, beyond the airport wall. Uh, Pilot uh, passenger said the pilot warned him when the uh, well I can't talk either today I'm just going to start that one <laughs> fix it in post you're doing better than I was doing I don't that know stuff. passenger <laughs> said that the pilot warned them that the landing would be rough when they first boarded uh, we were primed for something to happen was the weather also That's bad in Oakland <laughs> and, I don't know. he decided it was going to be a bad landing is... before he even got airborne <laughs> yeah <laughs> apparently so. Watch wow. out, folks. When we get to when we get to Burbank, it's not going to yeah. be very good. Yeah, just watch <laughs> you're know getting now. on the airplane. Hey, hey, folks, <laughs> you better make sure your seatbelts fastened because <laughs> it's, it's really, going to be pretty. It's going to be an awful. Oh, dear. So, I hope that this oh, is not true. I, I hope not either. I yeah, who knows? But um, anyway, uh, the EMS did its job. Um, uh, for folks who don't know, and I actually don't have the information here, so I'm just going to say what I kind of remember. But there was an incident back in uh, 2000. Is that right? Maybe Hillel. Or, yep, yeah. that's it. Uh, on the same runway with the Southwest uh, Airlines 737 that went off the end of the runway, but went much further because at that point in time, they did not have the um, engineered materials arrestor system, the EMAS, uh, in place at the end of the I'm runway. Impressed, Jeff. Thanks. Ding. The- <laughs> yeah, wait, where's my bell? There we go. Uh, Extra points. Thank you. And I think we talked about this a little bit the last time, but that, that flight touched down almost halfway down the runway and significantly beyond the end of the runway, which is only, what did I say on the Not last show? Not a long. 5,608 feet or something. Something, something like, like that. that. It's less than 6,000 Not feet a very long which, runway, but they ended up basically next to a gas station uh, next to the road beyond the end of the runway. So Fill her up. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll take uh, some jet A. <laughs> was it was this the one where the uh, captain said, "Well, that's the end of my career." I think that was, yeah. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah, or it was like I, I pick, looks like I picked the wrong week to quit. Uh, wasn't there one where they they said something a quote from airplane? 
after something I happened. Know. That was. I don't know if it's, yeah, it was that be. incident or not, but um, yeah, we're being a little silly here. But yeah, like I said, yeah. the good news is um, no injuries. Um, EMAS did what it was designed to do. EMAS. EMAS. So what the heck is EMAS? Anybody want to tackle that one? Yeah. You some, kind of, you, you mentioned it. Yeah. Go ahead, Nick. It's soft stuff that uh, the wheels will break through the surface, but then uh, it'll just uh, provide a, a great deal of friction uh, for to retard the aircraft, hopefully without breaking the gear off. So it's um, it's a, a high strength plastic plastic mesh anchored to the pavement, and then they um, pour silica into lanes bounded by the mesh, uh, and then cover that with a, a thin layer of poured cement, uh, which is treated by a sealant. So the aircraft weight breaks through the cement, and then it goes into the um, the stuff, the soft stuff below, which uh, drags it to a halt, like a car driving through thick sand. Yeah, it's it's a really cool concept, and uh, it's uh, I'll include in the show notes um, a link to the Wikipedia article regarding the engineered materials arrestor system or EMAS um, and how it all came about and how many uh, how much money it's they calculate it has saved since they introduced the systems uh, for many airports across the country, and um, I'm glad they had that installed at that runway eight at Burbank. Um, I noticed airports like, I'm sure Midway probably. Midway has it on uh, the ends of all four main runways. Okay. Uh, LaGuardia has them um, installed on most of the runways there. Um, It's, uh, in fact, uh, you may remember we talked about it on the show during the 2016 campaign for president, vice president, uh, the Vice presidential candidate Mike Pence, who became the vice president, was aboard a 737, a chartered flight by uh, Eastern Airlines, the, the charter company. And they ended up touching down long and going into the EMS. And uh, that I think prevented, you know, a lot of injuries slash deaths. It's a good system. Yeah, absolutely. It's expensive, but uh, it, it, you know, it's worth it. Exactly. So. And what's funny is they said many of these events, they've realized that the pilots, as they're approaching the end of the runway and that EMAS system, they try to get off the. Oh, yeah. They veer away from it instead of just going into it. (laughs) Yeah. Like, don't do that. I kind of understand that. It's like, you know, you're you're looking at what's coming up at you and you're thinking, well, I need to get off the end of the runway, Uh, not because you want to purposely avoid the EMAS, but it's just like it doesn't look like that's going to be enough room for you to stop. Yeah, it so. just looks like it's your it's your brain telling you don't don't do that. That's not a good idea because oftentimes it is um you know at the end of the EMAS is the thing that you don't want to run into like the wall or an intersection, gas station, water. Uh there's a reason it's there. And that's a Most runways um have a a stopway, you know, an area where you can decelerate and and not go off the end of a cliff or something like that. Uh, Greenville Yep. Uh, downtown Except has an EMS. <clears throat> the one incident, actually, Mark just mentioned it in the uh, chat room, too. The incident they had with the business jet a few months ago. Um, it was on the uh, the other end of the runway from where the EMAS is. But on the side where the EMAS is, there's an interstate. <clears throat> yeah. So. Um, Interesting. 
Yeah, it's kind of like a high-tech version of the uh, runaway truck ramps, if anyone's familiar with those. Have y'all ever seen a truck stuck in a runaway truck ramp? I have not, oh. but I've, I've seen those like on mountain Yeah, on mountain highways, especially here in the U.S., yeah. they're pretty common. They're basically just filled with gravel or sand. And, um, uh, you know, if a truck's brakes fail, they can drive into that essentially so they don't keep careening down the, the mountain pass. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if they lose their brakes, which I guess must not be uncommon. Or I've seen at least big rigs. two or three trucks in runaway truck ramps in the past Ooh, over the years. Not good. But I've lived in some mountainous places too. So it happens. Right. right. All right. Um, thank you, Steve and others for sending us links to that story. And uh, I don't know exactly, you know, as, as it mentioned in the article, heavy rain, uh, Southern California was getting a, a huge deluge of rain and flooding and everything else. And, uh, it was not a long runway, and um, I don't know, you know, what other factors were involved there. But um, I'm kind of surprised because the 737 is a pretty performs pretty well uh, stopping. So, mm-hmm. but, uh, well, anyway, like you said, we don't have all those details yet. No, maybe we'll <clears> get them. Maybe we won't. But either way, good outcome for all the people on board. Yeah, nobody hurt. Now, we can't say the same thing about this other story, uh, item B. The U.S. Marines declare five service members dead, ending search after the uh, air refueling um, incident uh, off the uh, Japanese coastline. Um, Five days after a pair of U.S. military aircraft crashed off the coast of Japan, the Marine Corps has called off its search and rescue efforts for five of the crew members involved, and they were on board the KC-130 refueling airplane, and um, just to summarize, basically what they have determined, the F-18 coming in uh, rendezvousing with the KC-130 for refueling. It was at night. Uh, He was using, uh, the the pilot was using night vision goggles, and uh, appears that he came in at a too high of a rate of uh, just too fast, and uh, ended up colliding with the KC-130, and both airplanes were destroyed. Uh, the good thing for the F-18 crew was that they had ejection seats. Um, the KC-130 uh, pilots and crew did not, and uh, they assumed that the airplane crashed and all perished. And uh, actually, the pilot flying the F-18 uh, safely ejected. I say safely. He ejected, but uh, did not survive his injuries, and so they lost what six out of seven uh, people in the uh, the whole incident, which is pretty sad. Apparently, uh, Captain Jamar uh, Reslard uh, was a 28 year old F 18 pilot with the Marine All Weather Fighter Attack Squadron 242, and they uh, have a lot of great things to say about him. Apparently, he was uh, quite a great guy, and he's going to be missed. Nick, when you did um, aerial 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 refueling, did you ever do any of the night stuff with like night vision goggles, or was that uh, no? We we always to... used uh, the tanker's lights and the radar to assess what was going on, uh, and um, it was like any interceptors. You you get close, uh, you have to keep a very close eye on your V sub C. Uh, the relative uh, your, speeds, your what your V sub C. Uh, the relative speeds, that is. So that's the rate of closure. So the radar will give you an indication of your rate of closure, 
uh, you'll know the target speed. Uh, and certainly in a tanker, he will usually tell you his speed. And you have to like scan the radar, scan your own indicator airspeed, and you make sure you bring it down incrementally so that uh, uh, when you're within a, a few uh, hundred meters, a few hundred yards, you, you've really got it down to a, a manageable speed. Uh, otherwise, you have to break away and restart your uh, approach. Uh, that's kind of a bit of a golden rule. And the other thing is um, you always uh, close in on uh, an aircraft you're going to formate on with uh, an escape path. So you're never at the same altitude or you're never on the, the same lateral course so that um, – if you misjudge it, you'll escape safely either to one side or underneath. And usually, if you're being very careful, you have both those avenues available to you. Uh, I don't know whether the 130 was maneuvering at the time, which makes it a little trickier. Uh, and if the guy was, of course, using uh, night vision goggles, uh, then that th they have all their own problems. I'm not an expert on NVG work, so I, I couldn't uh, talk a lot about that, but I know that you don't get very good uh, binocular vision out of them. So sometimes it's hard to judge and you can be full judging distances. So um, uh, I'm not going to criticize this chap. It's it's a highly uh, technical and highly complex thing trying to uh, fly a fighter uh, at night and join on a tanker and then tank. So and there may be lots of factors which will come out in an investigation, but just a very sad thing. No one goes into this job intending to make uh, an error that will result in anyone's death. So uh, I think we just have to take our hats off to them all and say they were very brave men. Yes. Very sad. And uh, we do appreciate uh, everything they did to, in their service for defending our country. All right. Item C. A Cav OK. I guess that's the name of the airline. Clever. Cav OK. By the way, um, recently here in the United States, uh, one of our former presidents died, uh, President H.W., uh, George H.W. Bush. And uh, I don't know if you're, <clears throat> excuse me, watching any of the coverage of that, but they were talking about the fact that um, the senior George Bush, um, the 41st president of the United States, was a Navy, a military pilot. And flew several sorties um, in the Navy in World War II. And um, he, uh, let's see, what the, the point of that, Cavokay, I believe that the key word or the special secret word that they had to project when, because he was quite old, I think he, he died, he was like 94 or something like that. He was in his 90s. Um, and uh, I guess they had been planning for this for some time and knew that, you know, you can't live forever. And they had come up with this, uh, the secret code word to use that when president George Bush senior passed away, he would, uh, they would use the word cav. Okay. And I thought that was pretty cool, you know, <laughs> very aviation related. And, uh, so when, when his son, George W. Bush, uh, got the word from Secret Service that uh, you know Cav OK. They they knew that uh, uh, HW had passed away. I thought that was pretty cool. That, that is, it's lovely to have a, um, a an aviation related term. So long as no one thought they were actually talking about the weather at the time. 
Um, right. It turns turns out that he was a naval aviator shot down in World War Two, yeah. yep. and dramatically rescued by a submarine. Which uh, that sounds quite an event. Yeah, um, he he did uh, amazing service for our country in the in the military, and then on in the political world after that. Um, anyway, getting back to this one, Cavalcade. Um, Antonov 74. Thank you. How did you know that was what I was? Because you stopped. Yeah. Thank you. At, uh, Sa- okay. all right. And where? Sao Tome. Ah, okay. Sao Tome. Really? Uh, where is that? I Brazil. Assuming it's in Brazil. Oh, okay. On the 29th of July, 2017. We're now oh, no, just hearing Sao about Tome it. Sao Tome and Principe. <laughs> huh? Sorry. It's a uh, no, Sao Tome and Principe. That's where it is. Oh, Yeah. Never heard of it before. I go, Never heard of it I before. go there all the time. <laughs> uh, they were going from that place to Accra in Ghana, which is, I know, it's in Africa. Yeah. With six Sao, crew. Sao Tome and Principe is in Africa also, just FYI. Just helping our accuracy oh, rating there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks, Hillel. Sorry, I totally, to said br- I totally said br- said. Wow, well, totally oh, Brazil, too. It was Brazil? me. It was my oh, okay. No, I'm just correcting my own mistakes too. here. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the big place that looks a little like South America, but it doesn't have such a pointy bottom. <laughs> okay. Huh? Uh, anyway, this happened on July 29th, 2017, so quite some time ago. But apparently the final report just was released by the appropriate regulatory agency, Nigeria uh, Accident Investigation Board. They released their uh, their final final report, and apparently they were uh, accelerating for takeoff on Sao Tome's runway two nine when the left hand engine D thirty six I guess that's the type of engine ingested a number of birds, prompting the crew to reject the takeoff. The aircraft overran the end of the runway and went down a slope before coming to a stop on soft ground. One crew member received injuries. The aircraft received substantial damage beyond repair. Ukraine's Deputy Minister of Infrastructure, Yuri Lavrenyuk, reported the flight was attempting takeoff when, according to preliminary information, the right-hand engine received a bird strike. The takeoff was rejected. The aircraft went past the runway end. Okay, we know that. Apparently, the birds that were ingested were eagles. (laughs) Those are big birds. And, uh, they, uh, is that right? Or am I referring to another accident that we're going to talk about here? No, I think that's it. No, maybe it's this other one here. G anyway. Um, don't read too much into it. It's a poorly written article. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think it does um, say Eagles later on. Okay. It is yeah. the one with the, with the Eagles. Um, yeah, we'll put the, uh, the, the, uh, accident, um, investigation final report in the show notes you can read about it um but the the thing that was interesting here to me was that he he ended up uh stopping or rejecting the takeoff past well past the the v1 speed and we all know that the only reason why you would reject uh beyond v1 is excuse me um if uh you know you didn't think the airplane was going to fly and where did that come from, anyway? That what? sound. You just got a notification. <laughs> oh, did I? I thought I, I thought I made my notifications silent, but apparently not. It's vibrating, silent ah. but deadly. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um. 
So, uh, and, and then the other thing that was interesting to me is the way the whole thing works is that apparently the flight engineer um, actually activates the thrust reversers. Uh, so yeah, what's the that captain told? I don't know. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense at all to me. I mean, it doesn't sound like a great system. No. And, and they Job didn't creation. get the, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they didn't get the um, spoilers out for a while, did they? No. Oh. For like five seconds or something like that, which is. Well, in fact, they said that the speed brake spoiler lever was in the down detent, uh, which oh, they never means they out. wouldn't deploy automatically. Yeah. Um, so they, they, I think they might've actually stopped, uh, had they done that. But, uh, the, if you notice the picture of this, this is a weird looking airplane, isn't it? The, uh, it is high wing and the engines are like mounted right up against the fuselage, uh, right at the sort of base of the, uh, the root of the wing. So, um, there's not a lot of different distance between the intakes. And if you thought birds had gone down one intake, I think it's quite likely you would think to yourself, well, they could have gone down both because. There's only like 10 feet between the two intakes, just the width of the fuselage, basically. Right. So, um, yeah, uh, that's, uh, I, I, I'm not going to uh, comment on his decision to reject if he'd stopped before the end of the runway because they'd done the drill properly. I don't think um, we'd be talking about it, would we? We would not, mm -hmm. most likely. Um, and I'm not even sure, you know, perhaps, you know, if he had continued to take off, perhaps, you know, only one of the engines would have failed and they would have been able to return uh, safely for a landing. Um, yeah, tough one, I guess. That, uh, yeah, I think my uh, my brief says uh, we'll only reject above V1 if there's, un um, if there's unambiguous indications that the aircraft will not fly. Right. Uh, because I personally think it's a lot safer to keep going. But uh, yep. there you go. I believe, uh, yeah, that's the same philosophy that we have item d american pilots get mcas training before expected software tweak you know we've talked about this mcas system on the last couple of shows i guess yeah at least. maneuvering characteristics augmentation system i believe is what it's called and uh, they said the american airlines has updated some pilot training to include discussion about the automated system suspected of playing a role and the deadly 29th of October crash of Lion Air Boeing 737 MAX, according to the company's pilots union. Uh, the training updates uh, come amid expectation that Boeing is working on a software change to address concerns with the 737 MAX's uh, maneuvering characteristics or augmentation system. Boeing added MCAS to the 737 MAX because that aircraft has slightly different flight characteristics from the earlier generation 737NG. And uh, basically, it makes the 757, 737 MAX behave like the 737NG, new generation, by trimming the stabilizer so that the aircraft nose drops if the aircraft approaches a stall with flaps up. Airlines say Boeing never informed them of the system, which is a problem. Anyway, um, so looks like now, you know, we're, they're trying to get the word out and get everybody trained so they, uh, everybody understands what the system is what it does, what could go wrong, and how to uh, deal with the situation if it doesn't work as advertised. So basically, it's uh, you know saying that you just treat this as a runaway stabilizer um, thing, and um, it doesn't work exactly the same as a generic runaway stabilizer um, kind of a situation. So the, the important thing is getting to those trim cutout switches, apparently just to completely turn off the system. 
So anything else to say about that? No. Okay. Be nice to have a big uh, master warning come up. I know you say that this trim wheel makes a lot of noise, but um, I've heard that some some guys are still quite capable of uh, ignoring it or missing it because apparently in some aircraft it's not as noisy as others. Yeah, apparently so. I mean, I'm only basing my knowledge of the trim wheel system on the 727, which shares a lot of the same controls and features of the 737. It's the same fuselage, the same cockpit arrangement, and I'm just assuming it's the same trim wheel system, but apparently um, it's not quite the same, so I really can't speak for it because I've never flown the 737. I don't have a type rating in that airplane. So <clears throat> my first job out of college was working in product integrity for the Department of the Navy, and we were building aircraft. That's what I did. And in product integrity, a couple of the uh, responsibilities of the whole department or division one was system safety and the other was reliability, maintainability, and you had to rotate to many of the different groups. And so I learned how they do the calculations for reliability, maintainability, and safety. And um, one of the things that we learned was they look at all the different failure modes and figure out, okay, mean time between failure or how to create systems to, to deal with failures. And um, Boeing's taking a lot of heat right now for having not explained how this system works. And um, knowing how some of these calculations get done, now I don't um, condone or, or excuse the fact that they didn't expose everybody to exactly what all the systems were and how they worked, and I get that. But as far as the safety calculations or reliability calculations, they said, okay, the only way this could fail is if these other things were inoperable. And if any of these other things were inoperable, then the plane is inoperable. These are these are things that are required minimum equipment list, and they shouldn't be flying. Period. And if I understand things correctly, they had inoperable um, angle of attack indicators, which should they should have grounded the plane in the first place. So I can understand the logic behind saying, well, if the angle of attack indicators were inoperable, they shouldn't be flying the plane. Therefore, they'll never see this problem. But they flew the plane anyway. Potentially, is that what, I think that's what's been coming out. So. It, you know, I don't say that they shouldn't have told people about the system so that everybody understands what all those systems were, but in understanding how they do the math, they figured this was never going to happen because the plane should have been grounded. Right. How so, does that protect you if they fail in the air? Because the MEL doesn't apply once you've uh, got airborne, or even once you've started moving under your own power. I think that that's a great that's a great question. If they if they're in the air, if something was happening then that's probably a use case that they didn't actually think through. Or maybe there's obviously, I'm assuming there's more to it than what we know. Um, so again, it's, there's, they should have, there's, there's a lot of things that could have happened to prevent this situation. And, um, and if, if in fact it was just a matter of, well, they didn't think of everything because they didn't think of how to, you know, they should exposing the pilots and crew and users to all those different failure modes, um, would have certainly been useful to know. I'm sure a lot of people like to know that's why Americans getting trained right now. Yeah. All right. I'm sure that this won't be the end of us talking about this oh, no. accident in the MCAS. Stay tuned. Yes. A Norwegian 787 risked overrun after taxiing too far. Interesting way to headline this article. Let me tell you really what happened here. Pilots of a Norwegian Boeing 787-9 Departing London Gatwick, inadvertently taxied over 400 meters beyond the beginning of the runway, shortening the takeoff distance and risking an overrun in the event of engine failure. The aircraft bound for Buenos Aires 
had been given instructions to enter runway 26 right along taxiway AN, Alpha November. This taxiway is unusual because it feeds into the runway in a straight line rather than requiring a turn to line up with the runway heading. Runway 26 right also has a displaced threshold. And in the dark, the pilots taxied up to this threshold some 417 meters past the beginning of the runway before starting their takeoff run. This meant the aircraft had insufficient thrust to meet regulatory takeoff performance criteria for the length of runway available. The 787 rotated about 600 meters from the runway end. After departure, both pilots commented that there was not much runway remaining at liftoff, says the Air Accidents Investigation Branch. Given the limiting length of the runway, the load had been reduced to allow takeoff, and therefore the crew were not surprised by the length of the runway and are used during the takeoff run and were unaware of any problem. But had the aircraft suffered an engine failure at the critical V1 speed, an attempt to abort the takeoff could have resulted in an overrun, says the inquiry. Analysis by the carrier indicated that the aircraft was 12 tons too heavy for the available distance. So I included in, uh, and you'll see it in the show notes as well, the airport diagram, uh, 20-9 page from Jefferson at the uh, Gatwick Airport in London. And you can see that 26 right, the taxiway uh, they were using basically is like an extension of the runway, but it's a taxiway at that point. And then you hit a certain point, which is the beginning of the uh, the runway itself. And then 417 meters later, then you actually cross the, the dis- displaced threshold. And that's the point at which airplanes coming in to land on 26 right would le- land beyond that point. Uh, but for takeoff, and if you look at the diagram, you'll see that it's a dark color, a black, with a, a different uh, a type of marking on it. That indicates that that taxiway surface can be used for takeoff and should be used, and it's used in the calculations for ta- uh, performance uh, takeoffs. So, uh, Nick, you're somebody who occasionally, and especially recently, flies out of Gatwick. And is that a, a normal procedure to use 26 right for takeoff? No, I, I've never used it. And although I only use go to Gatwick occasionally, I have operated out, out of there numerous times over the last 25 years. So I do know the airport. I'm just not in there every day. Um, and uh, uh, so it's a very rare occurrence. What they're trying to do at Gatwick is speed up their uh, um, movement rate by uh, trying to get uh, 26 right used as a departure runway and 26 left used as the landing runway, they can't work simultaneously because the two are very close. But they can get aircraft lined up ready to go so that when the landing aircraft is down under control, they can release the takeoff area and they can aircraft and they can certainly speed up the rate. Uh, but um, Actually, if you go to Google Maps, it's a it's a very clear picture of what the pilots would have seen. Now, the big clue is that you enter the end of the uh, runway two six right uh, full length via Charlie. Now, if these guys entered via Papa or November, which is uh, further down, uh, not down the runway, uh, further in the undershoot, as it were, in the approach part. Then you're on a taxiway, and you've got to taxi forward till it widens. Uh, and the only real indication that it, you're actually on the runway now are the white lines that indicate the edges of the runway. Um, there's no real 
uh, clear marking. Because you taxi down that 400-odd meters, and you then end up at the piano keys uh, with the runway number written on it. And that's a very clear indication that that is the threshold, but that's a display threshold. So what you would need to do is look carefully at your charts. You'd work out that, oh, hang on a minute, the, uh, that's, it. that's the display threshold for landing, but there's 400 meters before that I can use. Um, let's look. Oh, it's beside Taxiway Charlie that that starts. So if I'm going to taxi down that uh, taxiway leading onto the runway, uh, say via Papa or November, which is a bit further up, I'm going to have to go down the thin bit of taxiway. And when I get a beam, Charlie, the, uh, it now turns into runway magically. Uh, you haven't really done a thing. You've been going in the same direction. Uh, but because I'm a beam, Charlie, uh, I should be now on the runway. But it's not really clear. And I think that's why Gatwick are having to go ahead and, improve the markings uh, on that runway so that it's perfectly clear that this is the start of the takeoff run. So I don't um, know when um, the photo on Google Maps was taken. I'm assuming it's the same as the one on my Apple Maps here that I'm looking at on my phone. Um, but it's pretty clear. I mean, there's displaced threshold markings um, once you reach the, the runway end before you reach the actual threshold. Well, all I've got is a white line. There's and a white line arrows. and then there's white arrows. You know, the, yeah. the forward arrows that you get. But to me, that means displaced threshold and it's part of the runway. Uh, yes, it does. But um, they're, they're not exactly, I mean, they're not as clear as, uh, you know, uh, the piano keys, the uh, the visual indications at the beginning of the runway. Right. And what's more, if you're coming, approaching it down that taxiway, um, there's you're also getting all these taxiway markings that are on the ground as well, because don't forget that runway normally in normal life and certainly for many years has been a taxiway and treated as a taxiway. So it's full of taxiway markings. Yeah, that's true. You can uh, see those. I'm a little surprised that they actually don't have um, a runway sign there too, you know, because when you enter a runway, yeah. usually it, yeah, there, a there is a vertical sign on the left side, but I, because of the angle of Google maps, you know, you can't I'll see it on here, but I would, yeah, actually, I think I can see it on there. And of course it's at night. So, you know, none of these, yeah, that's markings. the factor it's going to be hard to see those paint markings at night. So right, unless right. that sign is well lit and it's obvious saying this is the beginning of, you know, runway 26 right, then, uh, yeah, I can understand perhaps why they made the mistake. Because especially when they're looking down the runway out there in their lights, they can see the threshold a bit further down because all those white piano keys are going to stand out well. They may have naturally just trundled down there. Uh, and the other factor is if they've come onto the uh, runway uh, it's a bit hard for people to visualize this unless you've got the maps. Hopefully we can put a picture up in the show notes. But if, if you're taxiing down to the runway, you're already aligned with the runway when you're coming down uh, the taxiway and you're just trundling down the taxiway until you get to the actual end of the runway um, and you've got your landing lights on. They're never nearly as clear as taxiway lights are for moving around on the ground because the angle of the lights are usually projected much higher. So what is directly in front of the aircraft is not usually well illuminated. Um, and that may be also what they did. I don't know. Um, but they may have already selected all their landing lights on and just be trundling down and just miss the white line that indicated right. the start of the uh, actual takeoff run. So um, I, I noticed that they have the same kind of a displaced threshold on 26 left. Is, I, I would imagine that's the, nor the normal takeoff in that direction. 
Uh, yeah, we we almost we invariably take off from uh, Alpha uh, Three or um, Mike. Mike is the uh, one near the uh, very end of the runway, the correct end of the runway. Um, but you, an Alpha Three is the one where the piano keys are. Um, okay. So, but on that runway, if it doesn't matter which taxiway you go into, you're on the runway. I think. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it because uh, yeah. there There's is no a taxiway. Yeah. Exactly. No, you're, you're correct about yeah. But having said that, the uh, that little bit that juts out of two six left that is only a couple of hundred meters. Uh, is indicated to be narrower than the normal width of a runway, runway. So I don't know if you're actually allowed to use that for takeoff or whether you have to uh, trundle down that till you're at the bit of the takeoff run that's uh, adjacent to uh, Mike. So I was I instructed if it's a dark color, like it's all black, just like the runway itself, then that is allowed for using, you know, that's, you know, what you can and should use for takeoff. Hmm, interesting, mm -hmm. though, on uh, 26 right. You reach dark pavement before you actually reach the the runway. Yeah, it, it's all the same color. I, yeah. I think they they've used the same surface material and all the access. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm referring to the actual diagram. Oh, on the diagram. Oh, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Picture. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, I put it this way: I can understand why the crew might have made uh, uh, the error. Um, yeah. It, it's not. It's not plain. They need and, to fix the ergonomics of this whole thing. Yeah, and everything in aviation to stop mistakes should be as simple and as plain as possible because whilst you're trying to interpret something and do everything else you need to on the flight deck, it is possible to make these kind of mistakes. When you were, uh, If you were doing all the performance calculations on your EFB or however you do it, would, would the performance data be based on 26 right via Intersection Charlie or... Um, you know, how would that be designated? Would that be like a clue yeah. to this? Is well, it would either say two six right full, uh, mm -hmm. or it would name the taxiway. And if it is the full length, it often says full, uh, okay. so you don't get a, a taxiway to indicate. But what between you and me, Jeff, what I and a lot of uh, my colleagues do is because uh, we might be given clearance to line up through any of those three taxiways: Romeo, Quebec, and Charlie. I personally do a performance calculation for the shortest one. So if I'm taxiing down and they change their minds and say, oh, line up via Romeo and take off, I've got safe uh, performance for that. And if they give me the further away ones, we, we give me a longer takeoff run, Quebec or Charlie, then I've just got a bit of performance in hand. Uh, that yep. way I don't have to halt and do a, a completely new performance calculation because they give me a slightly shorter takeoff run. So I always err on the safe side and take the uh, shortest probable or possible um, taxiway lineup point they give me. There, and you have a higher takeoff setting than you might need, but it's better yeah. safe than sorry, right? Exactly right. And it's a lot quicker if they uh, change the, uh, I mean, say right. the guy in the taxiway you are planning to line up on breaks, and if he's British Airways, that's quite common. Uh, <laughs> what, what he really means is that he's waiting for his numbers, which yeah. means he hasn't had his, his uh, calculations come through on his pops yet. Uh, but he says, oh, we've got a technical problem. Uh, then you'd have to sit behind him. But if you can take a shorter taxiway, then you can get away. So right. it's all about saving those few minutes that makes the difference. Anyth anything that's longer than what your performance data is based, uh, it's all gravy. Exactly. Yeah, got it covered. 
Yeah. Hey, so okay. question in the chat room, and I think maybe we take stuff like this for granted, but we reference the piano keys. That might not mean a lot to people who are either new to listening to the show or no, you've are heard not. of somebody playing it's the a, piano. It's a big it's like, piano there. You can't yeah. miss it. It's a it makes noise piano. when you like, and when you when you taxi over it, it goes ding a ling a ling a ling as you taxi over the keys. How silly are these people? Don't they know no, anything? No, no, no. So it's the you know if you've if you look out the window when you're on your next flight, or if you've ever been on a flight, or if you pull up a satellite view of an airport, you'll notice on the very ends of the runways where you're either departing from or landing, um, there's all these white stripes painted at the very end with a number that indicates the runway. Um, and depending on how many of those stripes there are, that's the width of the runway. So you know basically how wide the runway is when you're taking the runway. So. I have trouble counting them when I'm on short finals. That's the only problem. Well, <laughs> work out how wide yeah. the runway is. Yeah. I run out of yeah. If you're, if you're I, landing I, on I run, a runway, yes. you think you need to. <laughs> if there's too many for you to count, it's probably wide enough for your aircraft. So. <laughs> oh, that's a good. Yeah, because I mean, uh, there, are like, there are like 12 on this one. So I have to take my shoes and socks yeah. off as well. <laughs> so if there's four stripes, it's a 60 foot wide runway. Six is 75 exactly. feet. Eight is 100 feet. 16 is 200 feet. So if you can't count it, and you're flying a large aircraft, I'm going to say you're, you're probably, probably okay. okay. <laughs> you're going to be okay. <laughs> Too many to Yeah. Yes. Oh, you know, we've uh, talked about on the past couple of shows, the um, incidents of uh, Airbus's landing and collapsing nose wheels and nose, you know, damaging nose struts and that kind of thing. Well, not to be outdone, uh, a Peruvian... Boeing 737-5 or 500 uh, at La Paz on the 22nd of November. Uh, not really sure. It doesn't really say exactly why this happened, but they were landing and uh, both main gear struts while landing on La Paz's airport, El Alto, Bolivia, runway 10 at about 1022 local time uh, collapsed. And uh, the aircraft came to a stop on the center line of the runway resting on the nose gear of both engines and the aft belly of the fuselage. The passengers disembarked onto the runway via mobile, mobile, mobile stairs. There were no injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage. And um, I think I was reading here, uh, maybe in this article or another one, that um, one of the passengers said that everything seemed normal. And then let's see if I can find that quote here in the... Um, in the article, uh, on December 10th, 2018, a passenger reported there were no indications of any trouble prior to touchdown. Initial touchdown was smooth. Then there was a loud noise and the aircraft shuddered violently. The passenger thought a tire had blown. An engine was scraping the runway surface. Ceiling panels and surface panels came down. After the aircraft came to a stop, there was silence. Smoke could be seen rising either side of the aircraft. A strong smell of burned rubber and hot metal developed on board a flight attendant in the back attempted to put the ceiling panels back into place nothing to see here and <laughs> another flight attendant yelled to stop taking pictures <laughs> yeah uh, no, no firefighters pictures. no pictures yeah no pictures no come on nothing to see here firefighters arrived within a minute foamed the aircraft the captain came on about five minutes later that's a little troubling to me <laughs> hello Where, why was the captain not on the pa a little bit earlier than five minutes later anyway this is according to the passenger. Maybe the passenger didn't hear the captain initially. Uh, came on about five minutes later, advising stairs would be brought to the aircraft, and it would take another 
five minutes until the stairs would arrive. All passengers remained calm throughout. After arrival of the stairs, passengers disembarked. The aircraft was about three quarters of the way down the runway, and they were bused to the terminal. But that's all it says in this article from the Aviation Herald, at least so far. I guess they're doing their investigation. But it sounds to me like it landed normally, and then all of a sudden both main gear collapsed. And I don't understand how that happens unless somebody does some kind of an like pushes the override on the gear handle and puts the gear handle up. But then why did the nose wheel not collapse? So that doesn't really make sense either. And why anybody would do that, I don't understand. So be interesting to see if the previous landings or someone, some landing, some number of landings before that were hard hard and they actually fractured something that wasn't caught. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But for both gear to come up simultaneously. Uh, yeah, that's just because I can understand one gear uh, c- yeah. collapsing, but both of them. Now that smacks to me of them, uh, the act, the hydraulics being activated, them actually retracting. But again, Jeff, you're right. Yeah. Why wouldn't the nose wheel have come up as well? Unless unless there's some kind of center lock, you know, center over center kind of a mechanism that would prevent that. Perhaps I don't know. Yeah, with the nose. I guess I don't yeah. know, but uh, don't. it seems to me that uh, yeah, um, yeah. But the the main gear should have over-centering as well, though. Yeah, that's true. Good point. We, I know we have 737 pilots that uh, listen to the show, and perhaps they can chime in with what they think might have happened here. But this this article, this telling of the tale um, from the Aviation Herald doesn't have any data whatsoever as to you know what they think may have happened. I, why do they bother they with their cross steps? You'd just need a soapbox, wouldn't you? And you could... Step straight <laughs> on. That's true. It, it's not a very uh, no. The back of the especially if the yeah like, the aft uh, yeah. <laughs> just open the door and step out. <laughs> you know what though? Now it really makes a lot of sense. You ever notice the nacelles on the seven thirty seven? They kind of are like flattened out on the bottom mm-hmm. side. It's because of landings like this. Oh, They've all go. been flattened out from Absolutely. from the hard yeah. landings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all the flight attendants are up back going mind the gap, mind, mind the gap. The gap. <laughs> All right, uh, item G, Precision AT-72, which is uh, not an Antonov. It's an ATR. Well, that was an Antonov 74, and this is a AT-72. I get this name. Yeah. yeah uh, Very similar looking. Uh, yeah, what is this uh, who, who cares manufacturer what, stuff? Who cares what year it was built in? I don't mind. <laughs> what, what What is the name of the, uh, the uh, come on, you can do this stuff. Avion de transport. Yeah. Avion, Avion, uh, is it French or is it? Some other I, language. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure. I think it's French. Is that looks sounds French? Avion the way you said it. I don't know. Yeah, Fred's gonna really um, do my French now. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like I think it's a consortium okay. of um, various manufacturers, maybe French and Spanish or something, or Italian. I don't know. I, should. I thought they were Canadian. <laughs> Wait, that's not right. French Italian. No, they're they're not Canadian. Franco-Italian huh? aircraft manager or manufacturer. What is it? It's French Italian. French Italian. French and Italian. Hey. I got one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, presumably performing flight 490. That's an interesting statement. <laughs> presumably <laughs> performing flight 490 from. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> sources, unconfirmed sources say, uh, from Dar es Salaam to Mwanza, <laughs> Tanzania, landed in Mwanza. When the aircraft flew or rolled through a flock of birds and received multiple bird strikes, causing the visibility through the windshield to be substantially reduced, the aircraft rolled out without further incident. 
A runway inspection showed countless bird remains on the runway surface. <laughs> also, there's a picture here that you'll see. There were countless <laughs> remains and evidence of bird strike on the fuselage of the airplane, the front, the nose, the the whole nose cone, um, ray dome, uh, windshield, lots of, uh, I don't think that's part of their paint scheme. Um, it, it, it looks like those birds were related to lemmings, wasn't it? Because, I mean, they they all seem to have flown straight at the front of the airplane <laughs> yeah. and committed suicide on it. They're all hanging off the pitot probes. and Oh, yeah, it's a mess. Temperature probes. Wow. And So it, what, this is what I thought of when I saw all these pictures, thinking, I hate to be the person that's uh, in charge of cleaning this darn thing up because <laughs> yeah. they're going to be busy for a while. Absolutely. I mean, it's a mess. Yeah. I just get out the pressure washer. Just, you know. There you go. There you go. Stick it down the pita <laughs> probe. I like the, the close-ups <laughs> of the feathers. Just like. <laughs> that can't hurt. That's exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah. Check out this uh, this photo that we'll have in the show notes and you'll see that, yeah, it was a. Significant bird strike. Absolutely. I just, I'm very pleased it happened on landing and not takeoff. Yes. And to be clear, we don't know what types of birds these ones were, correct? The other no. one was eagles. These ones are eagles. many birds. They appear to be smaller, smaller birds. Yeah. And squishier. Yeah. I, I know squishier. what they are. They're dead birds. Dead birds. They're bloody <laughs> birds. Yeah, they are. Watch out for the bloody birds. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Give another beer, Halal. Just keep them coming. <laughs> we haven't even gotten to the meetup yet. That's uh, oh boy. Okay. Maybe maybe uh, don't then. <laughs> maybe best for me not do that. Um, H Dallas bound flight returns to Seattle after human heart was left on board. Uh, Hate yeah. to be the passenger walking. That. <laughs> hey, come on, have a heart. Apparently, I got an extra one. Yeah. Uh, and isn't Southwest Airlines uh, the one that has the heart? Uh, they, it, that's yes, a, yeah. a big part of their oh, really? at all. marketing. Yeah, it was not probably one of it was probably one of their management pilots. They don't have hearts. <laughs> wow, uh, that deserves. On Sunday afternoon, a Southwest Airlines flight bound for Dallas made a hairpin turn over eastern Idaho. Obviously, the person writing this article is not. An aviation journalist. No, no, it's uh, a hairdresser. Yeah. Uh, or a Formula race One. Race car driver. Uh, yeah, yeah right. race car <laughs> <laughs> reporter. Anyway, uh, they headed back for Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. The reason, the captain told the passengers, someone forgot to unload a human heart. Dr. Andrew Gottschalk recalled that his fellow passengers went through a series of reactions to the news. Uh, the first, shock. A human heart being transported on a commercial carrier? But the next reaction was of kindness because everyone on board was happy to save a life, he said. The captain went on to explain that the heart should have been left in Seattle after an earlier flight from Sacramento. Captain, oh, then horror sank in, Gottschalk said, and some passengers with an internet connection began to research how long a heart could be viable for a transplant. Mere hours. Southwest confirmed that the flight had been uh, had to return to Seattle on Sunday afternoon after officials realized the plane was still carrying the heart intended for delivery to a hospital. But additional details, including its intended destination and what it was being used for, remain unclear. Also unknown is whether anyone's life was ever in danger. Southwest Flight 3606 landed at SeaTac after about three hours in the air, and the life-critical cargo shipment was unloaded from the plane. Southwest spokesman Dan Lanson said by email, he added that 
Southwest made the decision to return because it was absolutely necessary to deliver the shipment to its destination in the Seattle area as quickly as possible. Uh, let's see. Um, it goes on to talk about how uh, people in the medical industry were kind of astonished that you know they they used commercial transportation. But I've seen. I don't know about you, probably not so much you, Nick, with the long haul stuff. You probably never see this kind of thing, but short haul and medium haul. Uh, it's not unusual and maybe happens once or twice a year uh, that we transport um, something critical like a heart or something, some kind of an organ for transplant. And the cool thing about it for us pilots is that we get to call ourselves a medevac flight or a life. What do we call it? Medevac or life flight or something like that. Medevac uh, in our call sign. And what that means is that we cannot accept any delays, and uh, usually air traffic control is really good about giving us directs and you know not giving us speed restrictions and that kind of thing when you use that uh, in your call sign. And um, so all these professionals, uh, you know, are on their best behavior to make sure the aircraft gets there on time, and a cargo loader leaves yeah. it on the airplane. Yeah, that seems to be what happened here. But I mean, I, I have to say, if if it was something this precious, how come it wasn't being hand carried by a courier on board, whose you know, know. job it was to manacle it to his wrist and make sure it went from A to B as quickly as possible? I can't believe they left it for cargo guys to sort out. If you look at the or read the article, it's kind of like um, you know they there it's there are a lot of inconsistencies with the story they don't they don't mention what the actual protocol was for transporting this particular uh organ heart and they say that also the that a lot of the people that they interviewed said they thought it was kind of odd because usually the life critical organ donations that they usually see come in via private jet yeah so uh, so who knows what the actual um what it was going to be used for. Um, yeah. What I'm else not, would you use sure. it for? I'm trying, I, I don't know. I don't deal with, uh, this is outside my yeah. area of expertise in, in medicine. So, um, but I can imagine perhaps it was something more research related perhaps. Um, yeah. Or if there were specific parts of the tissue they were going to be using like valves or um, vessels. I don't, I don't know. Might not have been as time critical. Yeah. So I guess there parts. I, parts of the heart that they can use that maybe aren't so time sensitive or time critical. I don't know. It just still seems strange that it wouldn't have been, as Nick said, with a courier, you know, not in the cargo hold. I can't right. imagine they would have done that with something that was very time sensitive or life critical. Well, years ago, um, we uh, I saw this a lot on the 727. They bring up a big box and it was um, eyeballs. Like you know, human eyeballs harvested to—I don't know what they were going to do for lenses, with them. perhaps. I don't know what they were going to do with them. But anyway, it was uh, we always made jokes like, uh, you know, they're going to have their eyes on you. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. But we put it in like the jump seat and strap it in. It was always in the cockpit. Yeah. We never put it down in the cargo hold. And then I don't know what at what point <laughs> it all changed, but we never see that anymore on any airplane that I fly. Uh, it might exactly. just be the types of contracts they have for. Yeah. That particular thing. But I mean, it was like, it was a serious thing. You know, you know they knew that you had this box of eyes yeah. or eye. Mike says corneas. Balls. That's better. That's really what I meant. Probably. Yeah. That, maybe that's what they were going to use them for. I don't know. 
anyway, interesting story. I have Anything no idea. Else? Yeah. The eyes have it. <laughs> yes, they do. That's the call in Parliament when they have a vote. The nays yeah. have it or the eyes have it. Wow. Yeah, I agree, Dana. All right. With that, I think now it's time for us to move on to your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Well, you know, our last show, uh, we attempted to play some audio from MBF, Matt Bunting Frame in... Uh, Outside the Sydney area, I believe. Melbourne. Right? Oh, yeah. Melbourne. Currently in Edinburgh. Oh, yeah. That's right. Or did, or is he uh, on his way back to... Uh... No, he just got there. Like, oh, he today. did? Okay. Oh, I misunderstood. I thought he had been there the whole time. Okay. Just arriving there. Well, anyway, we, like, we refer to Matt as MBF, and he did an interview and... Uh, had a little technical issue on the last show, so we decided we'd push it to this show. And I said, we're going to make it number one feedback. And so here we are. You're at the number one slot, Matt, with his interview with Evan Shu. G'day, everyone. Uh, MBF here. Just here with my uh, mate, Evan Shu. Uh, today, we're going to talk about something that happened a few weeks ago. And it's, a, it's something that happens numerous places around the world and for some people who are GA pilots who are unaware of these particular groups. G'day, Evan. How are you, mate? G'day, Matt. Good to see you. Good to see you too. <laughs> what, what's been, been happening? It has been a little while. What's been happening in your world? Uh, work, work, work. Um, not, and, well, I guess the biggest thing that's happened recently is uh, I got to go to Orange in New South Wales and um, attend a uh, an event. What kind of event did you uh, attend in Orange? It's called the C Triple P. So it's the Cirrus Pilot Proficiency Program. Okay. So what is that? So it's it's made by um, the Cirrus Owners and Pilots Association. So they known as COPA. That's, and that's not to be confused with the Mexican airline, is it? <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the Copa University organised these events around the world, and um, they do it sort of once, a, well, once every two years, I think, or once a year. Um, but I was lucky enough to go up and to the recent one um, in Orange and um, uh, sort of uh, represent my work. But also, I got to you know have a look at some of the lectures and all that sort of stuff as well. So. For those who are unaware, uh, Evan is rated to fly the Cirrus SR20 and the SR22. So, um, so Decopa is this like a worldwide thing here that they've decided to do in in Australia, or is this just for Australian uh, Cirrus owners and pilots? Yeah, it's uh, so they 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 hold them all around the world. Um, a lot of them are in the States because there's a lot of serious owners in the States, but uh, quite a lot in Europe as well. And they've had them um, in, yeah, um, many, many other places. But, um, yeah, every now and again, the Australian arm of the COPA will organise one in Australia and the, the Sirius University kind of, they travel down and they bring some of the actual factory trained Sirius 
instructors. And there's two parts to it. There's the flying side of it and the sort of the safety lectures side of it. Mm. And um, it's, oh, I found it uh, really, really actually uplifting and, and fascinating to attend all of the, the lectures, the safety lectures. And yeah, it's a very big focus on, you know, the safety and the uh, the improvement of your, your piloting skills and your decision-making skills and all that sort of stuff. So it's a case of it's an independent association from Cirrus or is it actually designed by Cirrus for its owners? No, it's actually, yeah, totally separate from Cirrus, but they do work closely with Cirrus. So it's uh, they, they, you know, a symbiotic relationship and yeah, it's just, designed to promote safety and and um you know good piloting and you know uh, just just basically improving your skills um across the uh, the cirrus fleet mm-hmm. and um they invite uh cirrus uh instructors they call them csips so um cirrus standardized instructor pilots and so some of those come along they also have uh, special guests that do um you know specialist lectures but uh yeah that the um if you're lucky enough you can organize to go for a fly with these factory trained pilots and uh so i didn't i didn't get involved in that side of it but uh i did speak to the guys that came back and uh when they went flying and uh, after they went flying sorry and uh they had a wonderful time so fantastic yeah and orange in new south wales is um it's a really lovely area and it's it's perfectly like the the orange aero club was the host and they've got some really good facilities a good lecture theater and um a nice um area that you like a bar and stuff so there was Mm. social aspect to it um once all of the lectures had finished and um uh, also the uh, train like the the training aircraft could actually depart and go to adjacent airports around. So within thirty minutes flight, there was a, a whole selection of different aerodromes wow. that were much quieter. So you could go and do circuit training at a, another quiet aerodrome and not get in each other's way. Mm-hmm. So basically, everyone kind of headed in their own directions, went to a, an adjacent airfield, and um, yeah. Can, yeah, did all their practice and all the interesting stuff that they they learned. Well, that's fantastic. What a, that's a fantastic opportunity for people who fly, you know, advanced uh, general aviation aircraft, high powered. Yeah, absolutely. Aircraft. And I I um I just went in there just you know hungry for information. So. so so what kind of lectures did you guys what what kind of lectures did Copa provide for the uh, owners and pilots? Well, they had. Um, like general safety overview stuff, like um, just uh, promoting the use of the the parachute, the, the CAP Caps. system, Cirrus mm-hmm. um, airframe parachute system. And um, so that was more of a general thing. And then you there was avionics training. So I went to one of the avionics stuff. So either they talk about the... Um, di- uh, not dying. Um, the the uh, G1000. Yeah, G one the the yeah the perspective system, and um, also the Avidine system. So you could uh, select which lecture you went to, because they they would run three lectures at one go. Mm-hmm. So there was um, on the so same basi- topic for different uh, different kinds of 
software or different kinds of avionics packages. So yeah, exactly. you wouldn't miss out on something. Yep. Well, there, there was always three lectures going on. So you basically looked at the list and, and selected which ones you'd go to. Yep. And, um, I went to the perspective one because I don't have any um, uh, Avidyne aircraft available to me at the moment, but um, um, maybe in the future. So maybe it's something I'll look at later. Mm-hmm. I went to a lot of the engine management stuff because that doesn't matter whether you, what, what kind of aircraft you have. They will, you know, all of the looking at the cylinder head temperatures, looking at the exhaust gas temperatures, what all that data means um, and what it means to look after your engine um, really well. Because, you know, there's the by the book, um, which is a very um, uh, sort of a an easy way to look at it. But if you look at the data, you can run it even even better um, sort of thing. Gives gives you more, uh, it's like more sets of eyes to be able to see accurately what's going on at what particular point in your engine to be able to maybe run some kind of further diagnostics. Absolutely, and yep. what to look for as an owner. Um, and I'm a renter, so, um, but I always want to know more about how the engine works and everything. So the the technical lectures about the engines were fascinating because they brought in a lot of parts from the engines and you could pull them apart and, and look at them and they were obviously not real like <laughs> used today yes. yeah. discontinued parts and we yeah got to see exactly how the fuel pump system worked exactly how the uh, the 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 the, uh, the cylinder the, the cylinder head um, yes. and one of the most fascinating lectures was all about uh, a bore scope so for those who don't know, that, that's a, basically putting a, a long, uh, long skinny camera um, into the cylinder and by way of manipulating which sort of direction it looks, you can actually look, it's got its own light source. You can see inside the cylinder and basically get an idea of the, the health of the cylinder and maybe get ahead of any issues that might be developing. So the kinds of things that with a with a, a scope people might be looking for is is for example maybe what discoloration in the the face of the the cylinder piston yeah. um, scoring of the actual bore mm-hmm. uh, what else would they be looking for a uh, lot of focus on the exhaust um, exhaust valves valve that's the one yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah basically looking at the color of it and um, the the seating of it as it closes so mm-hmm. once you have the um, the spark plug out you can actually turn the engine quite easily because there's no compression, no compression. Yeah. yeah so basically you turn it and they showed videos that they'd taken of aircraft that had had valve guides that were off so the valve moved as it closed and all sorts of interesting things so um just stuff that you you know you wouldn't generally find um you know it wouldn't be taught about in a you know your basic flying school it's more sort of expert and um advanced stuff so i mean that but again that kind of knowledge is so important if you're a ga pilot because you it's often you're up alone in an aircraft uh, with limited horsepower, limited altitude, which is obviously what you need in order to try and save yourself if you've got a problem. Um, so it's having an understanding of your engine is is essential. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and just, you know, um, with the modern avionics suites, you're generally 
presented with a heap of information, making mm. sense of it all can be a little bit bamboozling. So this kind of gave you some ideas of, of what to look at, what, what, you know, what it looks like when it's wrong, what it looks like when it's right. Yep. So yeah, it was just, just a, a fascinating thing. And I got to, got to meet some of the American uh, instructors um, they, yeah, very lovely people. I had a, a really good time. So like, I've been to a lot of flying, fly-ins and stuff like that as part of my work. I, I make, um, I work for a company that makes electronic flight bags. I found that some fly-ins, there's a lot of people that have a bit of a, they might have a bit of a gripe or a, a chip on their shoulder about some sort of issue that's, that's come up over the years. Mm. But, uh, overall this, this group, was just uh, all happy to be there, happy to be learning, just just there because they want to, not because they you know had to feel felt like they had to or something like that. So Came everyone was just yeah, yeah yeah everyone was just in a really good mood. So I thought um, it uh, I thought it needed you know I, I might uh, share a little pirate for the uh, the other listeners out there. So I, I, oh, I'm really good. thankful that you. you gave me the chance to uh, talk about it. Oh, mate, you're more than welcome. So of the topics that you, you listened to and you discussed <laughs> the mechanics and, and you've discussed some of the avionics, what do you think was the, mo the one that most impressed you and the one that mo other than the, the, the mechanical one, uh, what was the one that stood out in your mind the most? Probably the engine management stuff. Yep. Was, was probably the most helpful to me because um, you know you learn you learn the, the the basic theory behind it that's fine mm -hmm. and you learn how the factory wants you to operate the aircraft but then yep. there's you know that there's some um, more nuanced um, you know ways you can treat the engine to either keep the make sure that the um, temperatures stay low or, you know, what, what uh, a lot of it was talking about the, the Goldilocks zone for the engine, because you don't want it to be too cold. You don't want it to be too hot either. So yeah, uh, the, we like it. We look, we like our porridge, don't we? Just right. <laughs> just right. Yeah. So just, Very just good. the discussions that, that people had about, you know, their particular experiences with their engine or engines, um, and just uh, learning what not to do and stuff. It was just, yeah, a really good uh, eye-opening experience. Um, yep. And yeah, with with people that that really have a lot of it, a lot of knowledge and experience in the on the on the topics. So for someone who I don't own an aircraft and I'm just starting my uh, or revisiting my my training to become a pilot. Um, are there these types of organisations out there for GA pilots and other pilots? To yeah, get... there cert yep. certainly are. Um, there's a uh, Beechcraft pilots group, um, and there's uh, a, a Cessna owners group, and um, Lancer, and all, all sorts of um, like owners groups, uh, RV groups. Yep. So yeah, there's more of them out there. Yeah, this this is the first one that I'd been lucky enough to attend. So I think it's it's worth you know visiting more of them. If you're not as fortunate as for some to fly a Cirrus, but still enjoy your aviation and have different kinds of aircraft, you know, reach out to these groups to to try and and gain knowledge about your aircraft. If you, if you've just started as as a pilot, I suppose one of the things out of this would be, you know, try and get as much knowledge about what you fly as possible and reach out to these groups to, to learn more. 
Oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd recommend um, getting in touch with the the um, you know type groups um, of the aircraft that you fly, um, and yeah, just just try and absorb as much knowledge as you can. Um, there's mm. there's I, I don't think there's any wasted knowledge. No, indeed. So what's what's next for you, Evan? Um, I'll I'll definitely be going back to this event next year or the year after, whenever it's uh, held. And um, for me, it's uh, we're coming up to the the flight, like the uh, air show kind of um, season now. So I'm hoping to get to a few of those. Of course, we've got uh, Avalon coming up here in in uh, Southern Hemisphere next uh, next March. Yeah. So- yeah, that's a big, big one for us. So I suppose it's it's the key thing is, mate. You had a great time and you got to meet some really fantastic people, and you learnt a lot because of this association about what you fly. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I encourage anyone to uh, yeah uh, uh, again reach out and um, get in contact with your your type club. Indeed. Definitely. Now mm. these type clubs exist all around the world. So if you're listening to this not specifically in Australia where we're uh, recording. There are other owner groups and, and associations in the Northern Hemisphere and in Europe. So don't be afraid to uh, to reach out to these groups if you're starting out or even if you are an experienced pilot, just to get some, some uh, more knowledge and, and learn the nuances of your type, as, as Evan's alluded to, to uh, make sure that you feel safer uh, in what you fly. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. Thanks, Evan, for joining me tonight. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, mate, and uh, I look forward to our our next adventure together. Yeah, looking forward to going flying again soon. (laughs) All right, guys, uh, this is uh, Evan and MBF out. Wow, what a great interview, and I knew nothing about COPA as it uh, applies to Cirrus, which I thought was some kind of a cloud. Yeah, um, so COPA is a topic that you'll often hear up on Max Trescott's very, very good blog. If you're at all a GA pilot or interested in being a GA pilot or just GA flying, GA meaning general aviation. So that's the kind of flying that I do and that Steph does Mm -hmm. and a lot of other listeners do. That's where um, you're not paid to be a professional pilot, but it's still actually there are general aviation professional pilots, then there's just not air transport pilots is what it amounts to. So a lot of the uh, business pilot um, and uh, commercial, I'm sorry, corporate pilots are also GA. So COPA is one of several type specific organizations. And um, it's great to see that it's going strong enough in Australia to to have an event down there. Uh, If you're interested at all in general aviation in Australia, the most recent episode of Max Trescott Aviation News Talk podcast talks has an interview with the head of AOPA in Australia. AOPA is in the United States is the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, and I'm assuming that they've changed air. air you know, there's no America in it, so Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association of Australia, and um, really fascinating conversation there about the challenges of general aviation in Australia in the most recent episode. So I, I recommend his podcast in general. Uh, it's an excellent, very well-informed podcast. He's a great broadcaster, a great uh, producer. But, great teacher too. Um, it's just, yeah. it, I was almost going to skip that episode because I don't fly in, in Australia and I already have my predisposition against what 
some of the problems are when you overregulate aviation. But uh, for you know a, a year ago, everybody was worried about the air traffic control being privatized in the United States, among other regulation challenges that we have. But that one episode will really crystallize for any listener what the some of the underlying issues, some of the things that lead to the problems and the consequences and what overregulation really, really looks like. And it's really sad that uh, general aviation in Australia has been decimated because of overregulation in so many ways. But but thanks to Evan and uh, Matt, the interview shows that there's still some life left in general aviation in Australia, which is great. And, um, and the, the Serious Owners and Pilots Association, despite being based on Cirrus, they do a lot of really good things. So if there's uh, an interest in becoming a general aviation pilot, definitely look for a, a local SCOPA chapter or some way of getting involved because uh, not that there's one near me, right? But there's a, a lot of good things that they do that are not just based on Cirrus. So, yeah. Sounds like the kind of uh, conference that I'd like to attend, too. Very interesting. And, and the point was made there that uh, there are a lot of these types of groups out there that, uh, whether it be Cirrus or Mooney or Cessna or Piper or whatever, these uh, owner groups that uh, you really can benefit from uh, attending these kind of uh, conferences and stuff and learning a lot about your airplane and its operation and also just getting together with fellow aviation Geeks is a lot of fun. And uh, Copa, Copacabana. Yeah. Yep, I, I, I was waiting for it. Ages waiting ago. For it. But oh, you guys were you were muted? Listening. Yeah, now I got you up. Sorry. <laughs> were, you, uh, were, you, were you all saying things when I had yeah. the fader down? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, yeah. Like I, I made that joke like 10 minutes ago. Oh, did you? <laughs> I'm sure it was funnier than when I did it. <laughs> getting no response. Thanks, Jeff. He's, he's a having new, a good it's night. It's a new thing they? here. I'm still <laughs> figuring out how it all works, and apparently, I shouldn't touch this slider ever again. <laughs> I mean, that's only if you don't want to hear what we're saying. Yeah, yeah. We actually, like, maybe it was a good thing. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it recorded it anyway. So I it's going to be well, recorded it on our recorders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it may. It won't help if you didn't acknowledge what we were saying. <sighs> Sorry. Anyway, I was saying it sounds like the type of uh, conference that I'd like to attend. Yeah, you know, I like I like conferences. Yeah, yeah, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to one. What are they like? They're wonderful. A lot of snow skiing. Wonderful. A lot of skiing. tubs, snow skiing, yeah. drinking. Sitting yeah. around on beaches and drinking yeah. cocktails. <laughs> you, you know yeah. what we need to do is we need to really get tight with Max Trescott and get all of the APG invited to the Cirrus dinner that they do at the beginning of Air Venture. Ooh. Oh, it, absolutely. Yeah. Air Venture? Funny you should mention that. Uh-oh. We, uh, we're we going to be there uh, next year. Oh, you going to awesome. be there? I hope so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. good. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're planning a big party at the, uh, at the uh, Air Venture this year. I know APG is just a little teeny, teeny, tiny little part of it, but that's okay. We're happy to be there. Well, we definitely Absolutely. need to get Glenn involved because he and Glenn. Oh yeah, Glenn and Dave Abby know where every party happens all week long, and we got them in our camp. Mm -hmm. Well, at least Glenn. I'm not sure about Dave. <laughs> Just it, he's in the mailman camp. <laughs> no, Dave, we love you, man. Uh, I really Absolutely. appreciate his sense of humor. <laughs> if you don't take us to the party, I'll start dropping rubber bands everywhere. <laughs> 
Oh, my. Oh, my gosh. So moving on. Yes. Moving on. (laughs) Number two. That explains a lot. (laughs) Uh, Steve sent us in our second feedback item. And uh, it's a um, link to the 30th anniversary. Speaking of 30th anniversaries. Victims of Pan Am Flight 103. And uh, it talks about on December 21st, 2018, we're planning events to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the terrorist bombing that took the lives of 270 victims. Over the past 30 years, we have kept true to our original mission to discover the truth behind the bombing, seek justice for our loved ones, ensure the airline industry maintains and improves safety measures, educate the public about this incident and support one another. The 30th anniversary memorial will be held at Arlington National Cemetery's Pan Am 103 Karen on Friday, December 21st, 2018 at 1.30. Information about this you'll be able to find on our show notes for today's show. And this is from the uh, organization Victims of Pan Am Flight 103.org. So it was a tragic event, and I'm glad that they're uh, keeping the memory of it and the uh, victims alive. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Steve. Greg sent in some feedback for Glaucus. Hello, Captains Jeff, Dana, and Nick, and Dr. Steph. This is Greg from Sydney in Australia with some feedback on episode 350 and specifically. Glaucus's thoughts of <clears throat> a changing career. Um, I'm not 100% sure if he's actually got the idea of how the um, supposed government assistance works. Um, for it's, it's called HEX, or Higher Education Contribution Scheme. Uh, It comes into play for university students um, under certain conditions. And I suppose in the States you would call it a um, a student loan. The government lets you defer the costs of your course uh, until you have finished. And then once you start earning over a certain amount, you're automatically paying that amount back. Uh, Typically... Uh, well, as an example, my son who did two degrees, Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of uh, Engineering, um, he, uh, his hex fees were about uh, $50,000, uh, very similar to his girlfriends who also did two degrees as well. Um, so it gets up there and it only covers theory. So if Glaucus enrolled in, say, a full-time degree with the University of New South Wales, as an example, who offer a an aviation course. He could do a full-time degree, come out with a Bachelor of Science or Aviation or something, and a commercial licence. The hex fees on that, he would have to do it full-time, and the hex fees on that would equate to somewhere around $120,000 to $130,000. Now, what happens then? He comes out. He's got 250 hours, he's got a multi-engine uh, instrument rating, and that's it. He, no, Who's going to take him on? No airline. So now he has to start looking for work. Now, he did mention that he was uh, about 40 
married. His wife was a doctor. They had a couple of medical practices, apparently. For him to get work, he's not going to find work in if he's in Sydney. In Sydney, He's going to have to move around. Um, he's going to have to get out in the country, try and find somewhere, uh, flying various bits and pieces. Um, I know of a guy who got his uh, commercial licence uh, and then... He, he was young, he was only early, late teens, early 20s. He then moved from Sydney to Broome, which is diagonally across the country on the other side of the continent. And he started flying miners from Broome out to the various mine sites, initially in a 182, then a 210, then progressed onto twins. Um, after about six or seven years of doing that, he eventually... Now he's working for Qantas in the right-hand seat of a Fokker 100 doing regional stuff around Western Australia. Um, Laukas did mention TAFE, or Technical and Further Education, which is somewhere between... Uh, TAFE courses sit between uh, high school and universities. Now, in that particular case, uh, the HEX or the, or the uh, assistance will only cover the um, theory side there'll be no practical covered in that no so he's going to have to pay flying lessons out of his own pocket and I'm pretty sure it doesn't kick in until he's got his PPL so he can only do a commercial thing after that so the whole idea is you can't enroll get the uh, get the deferring of the costs for the theory and then only go to a PPL you, it doesn't actually kick in until you want to go beyond a PPL. So to do, go and do a uh, commercial rating. Um, so for Glaucus, you know, at, uh, his, his friend said at, at 40 it's, uh, it's you know, not going to work um, unless he's willing to do it full-time and get stuck right into it. I mean, as I said... Um, if he goes with the Uni of New South Wales, uh, it's a four-year degree, so he's going to be nearly 45 when he gets out, or 44 anyway. Um, and then he's got to rack up his hours. Now, he'll come out, he can probably, you know, once he's got his 250 up, I think, uh, you can do the ATPL theory without too much trouble. But now, in Australia, airlines have sort of not really touched anyone with under 1,500 hours. I know of several people who had 2,000 hours and, you know, couldn't get into the airlines. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's up to him. I would definitely um, double-check the facts on on the uh, on the uh, government assistance, the HEX for a uni degree. I'm not sure. It's, a, it's, um, it's still... A, it's not called HEX, but it's a very similar thing. TAFE... Uh, courses are usually uh, state government run, whereas the HECS being university is all um, federal government. But double check, and I'm pretty sure uh, it's going to sort of uh, throw a spanner in the works. Uh, especially, I mean, if he's willing to go on, then as I said, um, once, he's, once he's come out with his commercial licence, he's going to have to find work to build up his hours, and that's going to mean travelling. Um, going to places, living there, doing odd, you know, odd flying jobs. Um, probably not going to get that many out of Sydney. Um, so yeah, so good luck, Glaucus, and uh, 
is Greg signing off. Thank you, Greg, for the great feedback for Glaucus uh, regarding the um, educational program and uh, the the money for all of that. And apparently it looks like uh, Glaucus also heard from Grant and he said that he's spoken to him last Saturday, took time away from his family to talk to me and give me some expert guidance. I will no longer pursue the path of the set education I initially had in mind and will attempt to complete my training on my own pace with better and more passionate instructors. So sounds like the community, uh, you know, got together and, and came through and, and gave Glaucus some, uh, some good advice as, as to, uh, you know, where to go with his, uh, career progression. So I should, yeah, I love it. We've got so many, uh, well-educated and experienced listeners nowadays. You can get, uh, advice on almost anything from, uh, uh backache to, um, how to get a flying career. Exactly. Indeed. I don't know if anyone's really coming to our show for, Information about back. <laughs> well, except maybe specifically well, to me. We, we have an expert, <laughs> don't we? Yeah. We, yeah. We know somebody that sticks sharp objects into people's backs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's uh, explain your job poorly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do a very good job of it, did I? Stab it's people in the back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She's a backstabber. Professional backstabber. Professional backstabber. Good job. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Again, thanks, Greg, for taking the time to record that audio for us and for Glaucus. Okay, uh, let's continue with item number, well, where are we now? About two hours or more? Oh, a little bit Just over two hours. Oh, you know what? You know what that means, don't you? I think so. Yeah. We can go to bed. Very excited. It means that might be time for this week's installation or installment or whatever you want to call it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) <laughs> the old pilot's plain tales. The old pilot's plain tales. Mare's tails and woolly fleece. On the side of a rather scruffy building in Bruce Grove, Tottenham, London, there has been attached one of the famous London blue plaques. Put there by English heritage, the blue plaques are a permanent sign to commemorate the link between a location and a famous person. This particular plaque remembers Luke Howard, a chemist, who lived there between the years of 1772 and 1864. I doubt that many will have heard of him, but for aviators, we use his legacy every time we fly. Luke Howard's father was a lamp maker who placed Luke in a Quaker grammar school where the headmaster was renowned for flogging dull students. Perhaps this was his motivation to do well, but regardless, Luke was able to become a pharmacist, serving an apprenticeship and then starting his own chemist shop, or druggist as those across the Atlantic would say, in Fleet Street, London. However, it wasn't Howard's hard work as a dispensing chemist that aviators should thank him for, but more his hobby. We don't know why Howard developed an interest in this particular hobby, but it is thought to stem from the Great Fog, with two Gs, of 1783. 
Howard developed a fascination for the strange haze that had filled the sky that summer and dimmed the sun to a dull yellow disk. The cause was the eruption of the Icelandic volcano, the craters of Lachy, that had filled the atmosphere with dust and ash. The weather initially became very hot, with severe thunderstorms and hailstones big enough to kill cattle, but then the temperatures fell, causing a severe winter and a great frost which froze the River Thames in London. This phenomena, added to by the spectacle of a fiery meteor which flashed across the sky, captured the interest of the eleven-year-old boy and started a lifelong quest to understand the sky that would eventually result in him being dubbed the father of metrology. Howard became devoted to the study of the weather and made accurate observations for the rest of his life, augmenting his descriptions with readings from barometers and thermometers. Prior to the beginning of the 19th century, most weather observers believed that clouds were too transient, too changeable and short-lived to be classified or even analysed. With few exceptions, no cloud types were even named. They were just described by their colour and form as each individual saw them. So not just white fluffy bunnies, but dark, white, grey, black, mare's tails, mackerel skies, woolly fleece, towers and castles, rocks and oxes' eyes. Clouds were used in a few instances as forecast tools and in weather proverbs, but mostly by their state of darkness or colour. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning, and mackerel skies and mare's tails make lofty ships carry low sails. Like many, Howard was inspired by the Swedish taxonomist Carl von Linn, who had set about creating a classification system for all life forms. The system, which became known as the Linnaeus system, was one of the most significant scientific milestones of the 18th century. In the learned world, suddenly classification became a popular pastime and many adopted the Linnaeus system into their area of expertise. For many years, Howard had been studying the atmosphere and he believed he understood the way clouds interacted. He set about developing a classification system that he hoped would improve on fluffy bunnies, woolly fleece and castles in the air. However, he was beaten to the punch by a dastardly French cloud watcher, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who was, in 1802, the first to have his ideas published in a paper entitled On Cloud Form. Lamarck initially proposed five main types of clouds, which, to a casual observer like me, seem little better than fluffy bunnies. He suggested they be called hazy clouds, massed clouds, dappled clouds, broom-like clouds, and grouped clouds. 
Although he was to add to this list, it didn't make much of an impression on the scientists and naturalists at the time, particularly since his work and the names he gave to his clouds were even rather obscure in French. Later in the same year, though, Howard presented his paper to the Askesian Society, of which he was a founding member, entitled On the Modification of Clouds. A modern translation would be On the Classification of Clouds. Not only did Howard propose that one could identify clouds by several simple categories, but he followed Linnaeus's lead by giving them Latin names. Because of the prevalence of the Catholic Church across Europe and beyond, this made them understandable to the vast majority of European-derived cultures where Latin was understood. Howard believed all clouds belonged to three distinct groups. Cumulus, convex or conical heaps increasing upwards from a horizontal base, all bag clouds. Stratus, a widely extended horizontal sheet increasing from below, and cirrus, parallel flexuous fibres, extensible by increase in any or all directions. To denote a cloud in the act of condensation into rain, hail or snow, he added a fourth category, nimbus, a rain cloud, a cloud or system of clouds from which rain is falling. The great advantage of Howard's system was that the descriptors could be combined to account for complex formations. So, when cumulus clouds bunched together so that they became crowded in the sky, they became stratocumulus. He described other intermediate categories, such as occurred when small, well-defined, roundish masses were increasing from below, which became cirrocumulus. Howard's work made a big impression on those interested in the weather, particularly after his papers were reprinted in Thomas Foster's successful Researches about Atmospheric Phenomena in 1813. The classification system quickly gained wide acceptance, both in Britain and other countries. Amongst its biggest supporters was the German poet, philosopher and scientist Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Goth used the Howard classification in his weather journals and eventually dedicated four poems to Howard and his clouds. Others adopted his cloud names like the master painters Turner and John Constable. They used Howard's descriptions to depict clouds with greater detail and accuracy. Howard's clouds even inspired Shelley's poem, The Cloud, from where I found words apt for an aviator. While I sleep in the arms of the blast, sublime on the towers of my skyey bowers, lightning my pilot sits, in a cavern under is fettered the thunder, it struggles and howls at fits, over earth and ocean with gentle motion, this pilot is guiding me. But why is it so important for modern aviators to have a knowledge of a system of cloud identification created in 1802? Well, a bit like flying into a cloud called rock or castle, 
flying into a cumulonimbus can have disastrous consequences. Inside a thunderstorm cell, there are forces at work that would worry the most overconfident daredevils. Powerful lightning strikes are lightly. Downdrafts can exceed 50 knots and wind gusts of over 60 knots occur. The turbulence alone might break apart an airliner and the cloud supports hailstones that will cave in ray domes and smash windshields. These clouds can contain supercooled water that will overwhelm the most capable anti-icing systems and they are just in your average thunderstorm. Inside a supercell thunderstorm, updrafts as great as 87 knots have been recorded. Other clouds can be the harbinger of disaster. Lee waves or internal gravity waves are caused when an air mass is deflected upwards by a large obstacle such as a mountain range. If the atmosphere is suitably stably stratified, the deflected air will want to return to its original position, which causes a standing wave oscillation. This can be violent and stretch for hundreds of miles downwind of the source. Such phenomena have brought down aircraft, and if you want to listen to one such story, head back to the plane tale called Mount Fuji and Flight 911. The clouds that warn of lee waves, or mountain waves as they are often called, are smooth, curved, and properly named lenticularis, or lens clouds, that are created at the peak of each wave. If the atmosphere has layers of alternating dry and moist air, these clouds can be seen stacked one on top of the other. At the base of mountain waves, a rotor of circulating air can form that can be particularly dangerous due to its strong downdrafts and proximity to the ground, not an ideal combination. Also known as a roll cloud, a rotor cloud looks like a line of cumulus on the lee side and parallel to a ridge line. The cloud has a ragged downwind edge and its base is near the same height as the high ground that caused it. The tops of a rotor cloud can extend well above the ground and can merge with layers of lenticularis clouds above that. The turbulence and downdrafts that strong rotors cause are to be avoided at all costs. Virga is a visible area of rain that falls from a cloud, but evaporates before it reaches the ground. It's more correctly called a precipitation shaft. When Virga falls from the base of a dark cloud, it can be a clear indication of a downdraft or even the more dangerous microburst. Inside a large cumulus, there are strong updrafts that carry rain up to the freezing levels of the troposphere, but what goes up must come down. When the circulation within the cloud takes this freezing mass on a downward path, it can burst out of the base of the cloud and continue down to hit ground level. The downburst is dangerous enough to landing aircraft, but it's what happens when this mass of air hits the ground and spreads out in all directions that can lead to a disastrous sequence of events, 
when it is encountered on the approach. Small events are called microbursts, but larger ones exist that have been dubbed macrobursts. First, the pilot will encounter the leading edge of the wind, which causes them to rise above the glide path and their airspeed to increase. To counter the changes, the pilots will reduce power to get their speed back and increase their rate of descent to recover the glide path. They will then move into the centre of the downdraft with a high rate of descent, lower power settings and reducing airspeed. The downdraft will increase their descent rate and the initial headwind will rapidly turn into an equally strong tailwind, robbing them of vital flying speed. With their engines at a low power setting, it may now be too late to recover before striking the ground. In the past, a number of accidents have been attributed to these dangerous meteorological events. Whilst Virga is a strong indication of a downdraft, there can also be wet ones in heavy rain and dry ones from thunderstorms that produce little rain. They are all to be avoided. Low stratus and even fog are also forms of cloud. Here the dangers are multifaceted. You might simply be flying in clear air, over a layer of low cloud, and just not appreciate how close to the ground you are, such that a tall spire, tree, or mast might project up into your flight path, spoiling your whole day. Landing in foggy conditions must only be attempted with sufficient visibility, but even then there are pitfalls. Used to seeing the visual horizon in a certain position, when you catch sight of the runway on a foggy day, the shorter visibility depresses the horizon, making it appear lower than you are used to. In an attempt to put it back where you expect to see it, it will be natural to lower the nose, which isn't really something that will impress your passengers as you disappear into the undershoot. Luke Howard became a member of the Royal Society, and in addition to his seminal work on clouds, he left us a treasure trove of climatic observations that are used to compare changes in the atmosphere over the centuries. He was a pioneer of urban climatology, and he was the first to note the heat island effect that occurs in large cities, increasing the temperatures at night when compared to the surrounding countryside. His blue plaque simply states his fame as Namer of Clouds. In 2018, Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, located near to his old house in Bruce Grove, named viewing areas in honour of his cloud names at the top of its east and west stands of its new stadium. These, with panoramic views of the pitch and across London, were named Stratus East and Stratus West. So the next time you read a Metar or Taff or just gaze up into a cloud-filled sky, have a thought for the man who created the proper scientific names for those white fluffy things you fly through and thank Luke Howard for not having a forecast read Scattered Woolly Fleece at 2000 
and broken castles at 10,000. Oh, and watch out for the one type he failed to classify properly. Cumulo granite. That one can really spoil your day. Yeah, you got to watch out for cumulo granite, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, you those need a special kind of plane to go through those. Ah, <laughs> <sighs> that's really interesting stuff. Um, yeah, I'm glad that we have our system now, not mares tails and woolly fleece. Oh, I don't know. I would I like have quite liked it. Yes. I mean, <laughs> just very creative, very imaginative. You can almost picture it. You can. Yeah, exactly. Right. True, but then. They would use some kind of obscure. Not very standard, though. They would use some kind of obscure abbreviation that would completely ruin everything. Yeah, how do you abbreviate fluffy bunnies? I don't know. FB. B. Facebook. <laughs> Facebook feedback. Yeah. Anyway, excellent. Thank you, Nick, for uh, for doing that. Yeah, you're welcome. Good stuff. All right, let's move on. Looks like we have about a half an hour left in the show, and I believe we can uh, get in some more feedback here. Um, Steve sent us some audio feedback. So take it away, Steve. Hi, everybody. Steve Andress here. Since we like the movie Airplane, I thought I'd share this little story with you. Prior to leaving Seattle the other day, a flight attendant came up and she had with her a French horn that she said was too big for the overhead bin and wouldn't fit in the closet. And she asked if we could carry it up there with us. I said, sure. But before she went back, I said, make sure you tell the passenger that we'll have to use this if we go into the clouds because we'll be on instruments. Now, I thought that was funny. The FO seemed to think it was funny too. But then again, that's his job, to laugh at the captain's jokes. Well, thank you. Take care. <laughs> uh, I thought it was funny too, but you know, you need to have the rim shot in there and uh, maybe some laughter as well. Well, I don't have it set up. Never mind. <laughs> oh, that's good. Now it's got to be more like. <laughs> <laughs> there, there you go. That's it. exactly <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> but you're a very funny, funny guy. Maybe a funny guy as well. Thank you, Steve, for that. Steve Andrus. Um, Chris sent in some feedback, and he writes to us, As a newbie to the Airline Pilot Guy podcast, I want to thank you for your informative, educating, and very occasionally humorous podcast. Wow. Which one is he listening to? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I, I don't know. Uh, one of the other ones we mentioned during the show. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, he said very occasionally, so okay, it's probably ours. It helps me while while away the hours while driving for work. Having only recently started listening, I'm starting to work my way through the episodes in reverse order as once a week is not enough to satisfy my appetite. I was listening to episode 341 and the feedback, Nick Kidd's voice message and his uncle's story from the previous episode's plain tales. I hadn't picked up on the name kid at this point. This will make sense later. I found this quickly resonated with the story of my grandfather when he mentioned the struggle his uncle Jeff found dealing with the loss of his twin brother. My grandfather also lost his brother. They were both aircrew. And although he never really spoke about it outwardly, all the family could tell he was still feeling the loss right up to his death a few years ago. This theory was all but confirmed when the family went through his belongings after he died. And we found 
that he always carried a picture of his brother in his wallet for over 60 years. He always carried his brother and the grief with him. As Nick's feedback went on, I was captivated with the story, and hearing the words twin, collision, supply drop, and central France, my ears began to prick up. This sounds familiar, I thought. Listening further, and the story of how Nick's father found how his older brother was buried at Magny Leglis. Thank you. Following the uh, collision, I now could not believe my ears. It can't be. I then repeated to myself, this person's name is Kid. When Nick signed off with his name, I almost crashed the car. My great uncle was on that very same aircraft. My great uncle Charlie, Charles Taylor, was wireless operator slash air gunner on John Kidd's crew. We knew how he was killed and where he was buried. That his pilot, John, was a twin with a brother on the same squadron, etc. That was no surprise. What was of surprise is that this run-of-the-mill cruise story made it its way to a wider audience, no longer just a list of names on a list of all the stories in all the world. I quickly pulled over and listened to the previous episode's plain tale, and quickly, emotion overtook me. I had often thought of that fateful night, but to hear it out loud was really something else. I was filled with sadness of hearing the story, but also immense pride that I'm a relative of an actual hero in the narrative. As Nick mentioned, what these people did at such a young age is incomprehensible, but I guess that was the attitude at the time. The great saying of, quote, keep calm and carry on comes to mind. It was just something they did, fighting to keep their families safe. I'm sure in some way they continue to keep their families safe. Let me elaborate. I named my now two-and-a-half-year-old son Charlie in his honor. Charlie was born with a rare congenital heart and liver condition, meaning three lengthy bypass operations in the first two years of his life, all naturally risky procedures with various projected degrees of success. I'm pleased to say that the outlook currently is positive and Charlie is doing really well. I have to say, I feel the success is partly due to great Uncle Charlie's looking down on little Charlie and helping him through but mainly to what great-uncle Charlie, John Kidd, and his colleagues did for us and gave up, the ultimate sacrifice, so we can live in a world where great things like medical care happen in the first place. Now, I'm a little ashamed that while I've researched my great-uncle Charlie's history to some extent, I haven't made any efforts to contact any of the families of the crew. I'd be really grateful if you could either pass on my details to Nick Kidd or his to me. I'd most dearly like to contact Nick. Also, feel free to read this message on a future episode if you wish, and that's what we're doing right now. Thank you in advance, and wishing you all clear skies, tailwinds, and IPAs en route. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. Um, kind regards, Chris Taylor. And that's a amazing connection. And Liz says that she'll take care of making sure that Nick and Charlie become reunited or, or together they'll communicate with each other so it's the kind of story that just kind of gives you goosebumps a little bit no? it does when you oh god it, it's yeah. a, such a small world yeah i mean amazing. our list isn't so vast that i don't find this sort of thing absolutely incredible a very touching uh um, story um 
Uh, it's not the first time, of course. Uh, one of the stories um, I found uh, the son of one of the deceased pilots, uh, of course, is one of our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm just amazed how small a world we live in uh, as aviators. And I, I just love this kind of connection that we all have. And that now uh, Chris will be able to perhaps get in touch with. Uh, um, you know, uh, Nick, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, create a bigger circle. Absolutely. Yep. And it's amazing that, you know, that he was one of the 12 people that listened to our show. <laughs> that's that's a real small, a very small world. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I wasn't trying to say anything. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Thought I think were. I bumped something that made it oh, come back to my... Okay. Well... Sorry. No more profound thoughts. Stuff. No, no, I, I shared mine already. Okay. But I'm in amazement too. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just, um, thank you, Chris, for sharing that with us. And moving on, Bill Blaster Price, um, 737-8 Max Feedback. He said, hello, Captain Jeff and crew. I very much hope your Thanksgiving holiday went well. I was listening to Colonel Jeff's feedback, the Lion Air 610 accident feedback and max details and wanted to offer an opinion as well. I've actually flown the 737-8 max 56 times, but who's counting? And have grown to really enjoy it. It's a very modern upgrade to the Boeing 737-800NG with all the details Colonel Jeff described and really flies nicely. It also lands easier and smoother than an NG. The leap 1B engines are massive and is a huge power slash performance slash fuel efficient upgrade from the CFM 56 7Bs. I also discovered our 1.5 hour training online via iPad was sufficient to introduce us to the max features versus the NG. Any 737 NG pilot could get into a max and fly it with no difficulty. After the tragic Flight 610 accident in Indonesia, I decided to switch off the autopilot and autothrottle on my next leg in the MAX to see how the jet feels using only pitch power inputs. It's very stable, and with gear and flaps up at our current weight, used about 6.5 degrees nose up with approximately 75% N1, which gave us 250 knots indicated. I was confident If the stabilizer did run away, we could fly the aircraft without automation and return to the airport using only manual trim inputs. After completing our quick reference card checklist, the manual slab trim switches, I'm sorry, the manual stab trim switches would be moved to cutoff, and these switches are easily reached by either pilot below the flap handle. Captain Nick asked, would the stabilizer stop movement if you were to engage the electric trim switches in the opposite direction? Yes, they will. But Boeing says the stabilizer could re-engage after five seconds. Therefore, taking stab trim switches to cutout was critical to remove the automatic inputs to the stabilizer using manual stab trim wheel inputs only. Merely holding the control wheel up while the stabilizer trims down will not be sufficient to control the aircraft. Flying using manual trim wheel is sufficient, and I've actually landed other Boeing aircraft with manual trim only. Hopefully, more details of this horrible Lion Air accident will come out and the industry will learn valuable lessons from it. Our only question to the manufacturer would be, are there any other systems on the MAX, such as the MCAS, that we don't know about? Captain Nick's stick pusher, a la Hawker Sidley Trident, was a great idea. Kind regards, 
Blaster Bill in Los Angeles, California. And he sent us a PS as well. In reference to Sam's comment about beer, water plus hops plus yeast plus barley equals beer. Yes, in its basic form, that's for sure. Thank you, Bill, for sending the feedback. Sorry I missed you. He was in Atlanta, I think about a week ago, and I was on a trip or had some kind of other something going on. So I, I think that he said he owes me a breakfast at uh, Waffle House. So I definitely want to make sure that, yeah, <laughs> any excuse to have a Waffle House breakfast will be good. Any comments regarding the uh, that particular piece of feedback? No, just good to get... Um... You know, some firsthand information from someone who's flying the plane yep. and um, thinking about it critically, too. Appreciate that. Right. That's yeah, something that doesn't a, happen here very often. <laughs> this sort of incident, uh, although it obviously uh, is an appalling accident and you would hope it wouldn't really need this kind of an event to bring it to every pilot's attention. The one thing it has done is brought it to the attention of every 737 pilot, I think, probably in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, as a result, the likelihood of there being a second one are incredibly remote, right. which is great. But of course, you know, it would have been so much nicer uh, if it had just come out in training notes and uh, with a big red, you know, bold face saying, this can happen, do this. All right. Um Item seven, Gabriel, um, he says, starts off by saying, uh, parenthetically, my apologies for the email I sent earlier. Gmail thought I clicked send. And I think he also said something about sending in some feedback regarding or using the, um, the uh, website page and it not reaching us. And I'm thinking, hmm, I'm wondering if that is broken because that used to be a way for people to send in feedback. And I'm wondering if, I don't know, maybe I should give it a try. Yeah. Maybe we need to test that. Test run. In fact, you know, I, I, earlier today I sent a test and I'm looking in my feedback now. Uh, I don't see my test message. I'll send one right now and see if it works. Okay. So thank you for pointing out that apparently that our messaging system uh, via the website's not working. That's no good. Oh, anyway, we'll continue with uh, Gabriel's feedback. He says, hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain Steph, and Captain Dana. It's Gabriel again. Here is how my last week has been. Uh, just to clarify, this is not going to be a huge, long email of everything that has happened in the past week. I went to ground school on the weekend, and we studied meteorology. Why do I have such trouble with that word? Meteorology. Directly after I had booked some time on the Academy simulator, I flew out of the regional airport, our regional airport to Vancouver International and did some traffic patterns there. Now, before you go and ask Mr. Google where Charlie Yankee Victor Romeo is, I already translated it. Uh, I will first tell you that, no, it's not legal to do traffic patterns at this international airport in the Cessna 150. Why not? Hmm. Seems like it would be well here in the U.S. It would be legal. May not be smart, <laughs> but um, right. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Canadian rules are different. There may be like <clears throat> you know they have to pay for use and stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah. But it'd still be legal though, right? Just expensive. 
Anyway, back on topic. We flew back to our regional airport again, did a few patterns there. On my third, my instructor said that he needed to get something and hopped out of the cockpit. As I'm on downwind, well, a few Canadian geese appear and hit my engine. Now, picture this. We have two runways running parallel to each other, running east and west, uh, runways 826, and one running north and south, 3618. As the pattern for runway 8 right is to the right, I was passing runway 36. I circled around and executed a landing in a very smoky cockpit. I was run through multiple emergency scenarios, including, but not limited to, complete wideout at 300 feet up on landing, or 300 feet up on landing, vertigo, engine throttle failure where the RPM guns it and you can't control it. On my regular landing, I was on short final when I noticed deer on the runway. This was not my instructor's doing, but mere stupidity of X-Plane 9. Hmm. Now to answer your questions. When I was listening to your podcast live, I was on a lunch break and also simulating. I don't like to call it a game on X-Plane 11. And it was not very easy to fly the plane as well as reply to your questions in chat. Gabriel, you have to have your priorities, you know? Crew resource management. Yes, chat is more important than flying X-Plane 11. Um, (laughs) Yes, RPP does stand for Recreational Pilot Permit. I've never heard of SPL. I guess that's the Sport Pilot License. Yeah. Uh, Yes, I had made the mistake of sending you directly through your website. So, Steph, you said you sent something... I don't see anything from Steph via the website. I just sent it. Oh, okay. I maybe I'll take it. I did it to arrive already, but huh. Hmm. Let me see. I'm going to look at all mail. Maybe uh, Gmail is what? Okay. Nope. Nada. And I I sent my test message like three hours ago or something. So yeah, it's broken. Thank you, Gabriel, for pointing that out. We'll have to. Talk with uh, Arash and see if he can figure out what's going on. Uh, Okay, back to Gabriel's feedback. Um, Captain, oh, thank you. Good thing Hillel's here. He's pointing at where I should start. Um, Yes. No. Now, if there's enough time to share this, it's something a bit funny, annoying, that does relate to aviation. I came home the other day to find a courier had delivered my Christmas present an airplane yoke for use in a flight simulator, not in the courier's box. Well, I just found out my birthday two weeks early. So I guess somehow it came out of the box or whatever. It was supposed to be a surprise. Um, now, one question. Captain Jeff, was the MD-88 that I asked Mr. Google about in your command? So I'm not sure. That's the thing I'm not. Do you remember what he was talking about, Nick or stuff? I have no idea. I yeah, don't I don't either. I remember him talking about asking Mr. Google about the airline for which I fly, Acme. No, it was a particular airframe he was talking about, uh, I think. Oh. Oh, and it was an aircraft that had an incident. Well, that he could was, be me because I don't ever have incidents. Well, that's it. I've never heard you talk about an incident except when you couldn't get your damn gear up. Yep, that's the only time. that. Uh, yeah. That's so, my... And this guy had an engine failure, I think, or something. So oh, I've I'm not had an engine probably wasn't you. Not on the 88. Now, you're, you're squeaky clean, you know, as pure well, as driven snow. You got that right. Yeah. Yes. Um, oh, is, is uh, okay. Gabriel is in the chat room. He says the MD-88 in Atlanta. 
Okay. Well, that narrows it down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> None there at all, normally. If, if it has anything to do with what Nick is talking about, the fact that uh, we took off and I couldn't get the gear to retract. And uh, I think I was talking with Mr. Happy on uh, air traffic control that day. Um, and uh, yeah, that was me. But um, so that's my claim to fame on. Did he uh, understand you when you said, I, uh, I'm not carrying an emergency or? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Because he should have said, are you declaring a pan or a mayday? Yeah, he should have, Nick. Yeah. These stupid yeah. yanks. shows what Mr. Happy knows. <laughs> I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, he says, cue the Jaws music. I never had a chance to uh, fix or get some Jaws music going on. He said, Nick's doing it. A, a great job. Okay. Cue mm -hmm. the Jaws music. Go. Right. And then he has the APG syndrome. Okay. You can stop doing the Jaws. <laughs> wow. This is really an amazingly creative episode. Um, she says, so he has the uh, APG syndrome. Sorry, Gabriel. Um, now I really should wrap this up. Thank you so much for the answers to my questions last week, and I'll try to join you next time live. And he did, because he's there, right? There now. he is. See him in the chat room. Whoop, there it is. Whoop. Gabriel, fancy getting a yoke instead of a side stick. What's the matter? Uh, <laughs> God. You would have had to pay uh, probably less, less postage. Yeah. For the uh, side sticks, side sticks, uh, cheapest chips. Or you could go to Home Depot. Remember, we talked about this on our own oh, yeah. show. Get, a, and get the a, little yellow. Yeah, that's probably a lot, mm -hmm. a lot less expensive. Yeah, it wouldn't work quite as well. But, I hear yeah. they still sell those Atari joysticks for Atari twenty six hundreds on eBay. Oh, cool. Interesting. Um, finally, Sean says, "Caution: Your airline meal may include bullets." Hmm? And he says, only B.A. could screw this up. Well, and that's not that's him saying that, not me. So, yeah, B.A., don't don't get mad at me. So passenger Dr. Michael Brown was traveling from Heathrow to Chicago on business class when he noticed a very strange addition to the menu. Traveling business class means you get a special menu of restaurant quality food, often with exotic ingredients. But you'd never expect to end up with fragments of bullets in your dinner. And so now there's a little... Uh, Why not? Um, if, if you're getting game that's been shot, what? I mean, you Why guys, you guys shoot a lot of deer in the the states, don't you? And you use shotguns to shoot partridge, pheasant, all sorts of birds. Oh, I, you eat? I don't think. Well, that... you're go ahead. Supposed to, you're supposed to prepare the food. I mean, I guess if you've shot it, especially with a shotgun or something, you expect to perhaps find bullet fragments. Uh, um. A lot of hunters that are hunting for their own game and meat will use um, bow and arrow. So there's less you risk of it's wood in your uh, <laughs> big arrow. Yes. Oh, I mean, it, it, it's a standard thing. If you're buying a genuine game from a game butcher, it's common to have something that a hunter will have uh, shot. Um, and the, the butcher will prepare it, um, but they can never be 100% certain that they won't have left a, a tiny pellet or perhaps a, a tiny bit of, of a bullet or whatever in the meat. It's, it's kind of, it's a kind of indication that this hasn't been a farm bred, um, 
animal. This was you know, a wild animal that was shot, and as such, is its meat is to be um, treasured because of its uh, you know its quality compared with uh, something that might have been reared uh, in a huge farm. Absolutely, and I think that you know most of the food that we're going to see on an airplane is you know heavily processed and you know farmed in a commercial well, farm, farm raised anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you're hey, not lucky. Good, good for this airline for having, um, you know, fresh to the airplane food. Yeah, I yeah, I, I'm going to defend BA on this. And I, I think, think uh, this chap is uh, is a grinning buffoon. I think so too. I, I think. Well, that, he lives in North Carolina, so. Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> and he's he's probably was he? Oh, he's doctor. Uh, yeah. Is he a medical doctor or a PhD yes. doctor? No, no, medical doctors are nice people. I must be a PhD guy. <laughs> don't hang out with enough of us. For <laughs> well, certainly all the ones I've met. Yes. I'm thinking that if I saw that, I would think that this is very special what I'm having here on my menu. I would probably order it. Yeah. Mm. Just be careful yeah. biting down too hard. <laughs> Bring a magnet. Yeah. Well, they've warned you. I don't know. What do you expect? Yeah. Oh, Dr. Michael Brown, what are we going to do with you? Mm. And it comes with, you see, home counters. That's the south of venison stew, rosemary dumplings, roasted chestnut. Ah, oh, it sounds lovely. Not too sure about wilted kale, but uh, I'm not hugely fond of kale. But no, that sounds I like very kale. Nice dish. Not wilted kale, like kale chips, though. Very good. So I, yeah. what I don't get here is that, especially somebody being an American, they it seems to me that they would be the last people to be surprised by that little blurb in on the menu, right? Because we're the ones that have all the well, guns. Uh, all the um, oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He probably yeah, didn't grow up in North Carolina. Yeah, I think he maybe he's never left the city. Yeah, it doesn't say what part. Yeah. It's probably from down the road from me. Probably Steph's well, neighbor. Probably. Probably lives in my <laughs> Oh, anyway. I don't so, know. They, they have his picture here, but um, that doesn't look familiar to me. Research triangle. Yeah. I mean, he's oh, got yeah. a nice mustache. Probably area. Yeah. Yeah. You know. It would be illegal in Acme. Uh, I think you're right. Well, yeah. It I guess regular. Too far well, beyond the corners of the mound. Yeah. Although I have seen a guy that uh, is like so out of out of regulations that it's like you look at it, you almost want to laugh. I mean, it's like <laughs> it's, it's an awesome mustache, but you're going, really? Wow. You're really pushing it. And I like it anyway. So thank you, Sean, for uh, pointing this out. And uh, I think we all agree. We're, we're all on British Airways side there. Airways yeah. side. All right. I think that's going to do it. Did I get everything? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I, now I understand why there, why there wasn't too many items in the feedback, because I think Liz knew that you guys were going to do something special at the beginning of the show. Very clever. Anyway, thanks again for that, by the way, um, for uh, helping me celebrate my 30th anniversary with Acme. And uh, let's see, if you want to learn more about the show, uh, you can head over to the Airline Pilot Guy website. And we have apps for your iOS and Android devices, and we're also on social media. You can head over to Twitter, use the handle at APG Crew, and find all of us there. Interact with us in 280 characters or less. You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Lots of community interaction there. People sharing aviation stories and meetup um, information. Um, 
mostly managed by Nick and Liz. But if you send us stuff there, it will get to us to whoever you. Where we, no. <laughs> no. Well, Nick is apparently now guarding all of it, and um, Nick will we, get your information. And yeah, yeah, we we like, we never pass anything on. No, no. Maybe no. you should head over to Twitter. Anyway, um, <laughs> for more information about meetups and other uh, community interaction in person today, hello, hello, come on. Oh, here he's he's right here. Okay, right here. let me move out of the way. <laughs> So we are using Slack, if you can see that there. Slack is an app. It works on your phone or your tablet or your PC or just if you want to use it in a browser. And it makes it a lot easier to coordinate and communicate our uh, meetings or what's going on. We've got several different channels, so you can send in ideas for plain tales. You can talk about going to Oshkosh or next year to go, two years from now, to go to Farmborough. And you can also get updates on what's going on with the crew in Slack. To get into Slack, you need to send me an email. The easiest way to do that is to send it to S-L-A-C-K. That's slack at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you don't have email because you still live in the 18th century, you may want to use Twitter, which I don't know how that would work either. But if you send me a tweet to H-I-1-1-E-1, my handle is Twitter H-I-1-1-E-1. And simply include a way to get in touch with you or send me your email that way. And I can send you an invitation into Slack. And uh, it doesn't cost anything. And it's a great way to find out what's going on with the crew. And that's how we've communicated about today's meetup and any other future meetups. There's actually one tomorrow if you're listening live with Captain Dana, who's going to be also in Baltimore. And I think uh, F.O. Craig and maybe uh, Robert Fairbairn and a few others who are going to go out to dinner tomorrow night right here in Baltimore. So... Uh, if you are interested in keeping tabs on what's going on or being part of the community, just join us in Slack. Absolutely. Thank you very much for heading up that that effort. Pleasure. And by the way, any of those emails that he mentioned, uh, they just go into cyberspace and nobody ever sees them. <laughs> <laughs> much like your feedback on much, Facebook. Much like, <laughs> the, much like the website feedback. Throw them all away. <laughs> it's never yeah. Well, the web, website feedback, we actually have no idea where that's going. So I was wondering why our feedback is really starting to fall off. <laughs> exactly right. No idea where that's going. Uh, we're not ignoring you uh, on purpose, well, anyway. <laughs> yeah, it'll be sitting in some outbox somewhere, or some inbox. <laughs> we never have technical difficulties. I no. Why. Never. Never. You're right. And, uh, yeah, so uh, had a great show uh, with you all today. It's always a lot of fun to uh, get together with the crew and uh, the community. And uh, just another reminder, if you ever uh, see the notification via either the app push notification messages or... Uh, our APG crew Twitter account or Facebook and you know we announced that we're going to be recording the show live you really owe it to yourself to uh, be a part of it because it's a lot of fun great people in the chat room every week and uh, I think you'll really enjoy it and you might even actually hear some of the show maybe so Meh. you nah. can always listen later that's true that's true because we record this spend your whole life with the APG that's right what else is there there isn't <laughs> okay and until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Adios. Brilliant. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day.